Hello, fellow Star Wars fans. Welcome to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable. What you're about to hear is Rebels Roundtable number 27, the team's reactions to The Force Awakens. This is an especially long episode recorded over the span of two nights, December 20 and December 28 of 2015. On the panel this time, we have most of the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable's regulars, plus one of our frequent contributors, which inadvertently has created a reunion for Republic Forces Radio Network, the podcast where we talked about the Clone Wars prior to launching this podcast to talk about Rebels. On the panel, we have host Jonathan, along with Jen, Barrent, yours truly, Nathan P. Butler, and frequent contributor Jerry. To hear Mark's thoughts on The Force Awakens, check out episodes 200, 201, and beyond on The Star Wars Report, the parent podcast from which this one spawned at StarWarsReport.com. You can also hear my thoughts and Mark's as we delve into things dealing with continuity in relation to The Force Awakens in episodes 196, 197, and 198, or thereabouts, on Star Wars Beyond the Films, also at StarWarsReport.com. Those episodes of Star Wars Beyond the Films will be released in late February or early March. The reason I bring you sort of this editorial note here is to let you know a bit about the future of this show in case you don't follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. As you may already know, we restructured Rebels Roundtable a few times behind the scenes in terms of adding some new team members, changing which team members are sort of the core and how we record things, how we edit things, who edits things, all in a hope that somehow we could keep the show going beyond the end of Season 2 of Rebels. Unfortunately, things have just gotten too tight time-wise for many of the team members for us to be able to continue beyond that point. We have team members in three different time zones. We have team members who have switched jobs, switched job schedules, started school, ended school, all since this show began. The end result is that recording a weekly show is no longer feasible for the team. And rather than handing it off to a completely new team, which would sort of defeat the purpose of this being a continuation of Republic Forces Radio Network, we've decided it's time to call it quits when Season 2 of Rebels has ended. Already, though, you are going to see some changes. Because of a new job with new responsibility and more money, Jonathan, unfortunately, is going to have to step back from the show and won't be our regular host. From now on, the core team you'll tend to hear on each episode as the series finishes will be comprised of me, Mark, and Barrett. We'll try to get Jen, Bethany, Jerry, Brock, and others on the show as much as we can in our last few episodes, but those three will form the core. One of the things that made it possible for us to do Republic Forces Radio Network on a regular basis back when The Clone Wars was going was the fact that The Clone Wars was released in story arcs. We can have one episode of that show for one entire arc, meaning several episodes of The Clone Wars. Rebels hasn't really done that, which has made this a weekly show and a much more difficult situation in terms of time constraints. In order to finish out Season 2, we're going to be taking a Republic Forces Radio Network approach to Rebels. We are essentially going to be waiting to cover new episodes of Rebels until there have been several, and about once a month or so, we'll stop, take a moment to reflect back on all the episodes since the last time we recorded, and release that as an episode. Then we'll do the same another month later for another four episodes or so until season two is over. Then we'll do a wrap-up episode for the season that'll double as our goodbye. I'm sure it's not the news you wanted to hear. And frankly, we've been trying to avoid this for some time. 
But now that we know the end is coming, we intend to end on a quality note. We begin that journey to the end of Rebels Roundtable with this episode with some lively discussion on The Force Awakens. As always, thank you for listening, everyone. May the Force be with you, and long live the Rebellion. You're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. But that's not what we're doing tonight. Tonight we're talking The Force Awakens. Yes, after several years of waiting, we got a new Star Wars film. And joining me to discuss the next chapter in Star Wars fandom, we have Jen. Hey, guys. Jerry. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Barrent. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. Let's talk some Force Awakens. And the professor himself, Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. So, yes, as we record this, The Force Awakens has been out several days and seeming to be breaking every record there is to break. But is it the Star Wars that we were waiting for? Is it the Star Wars that we wanted? This is what we're here to discuss. So before we get to the actual movie, why don't we talk about what led up to it? When we think back to, I believe, 2012, right around Halloween, there was an announcement that Disney had purchased Lucasfilm for $4 billion. I always feel like I'm in an Austin Powers movie. And we're putting out a new Star Wars film, something that I don't think any of us really expected. What about you guys? I mean, how did, how did that information hit you, that we were going to get a new Star Wars film? Were you excited? Were you nervous? I was leery. Uh, but I was also kind of feeling a little bit confident. I had this was when the the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was kind of hitting its heyday, and and I had not thought those would be good. And Disney had been kind of running a lot of those, and so I was like, well, we'll see. That was kind of my thought the entire wait up until last night, which is when I saw the movie. So I was kind of just holding my breath, and being like, well, well, we'll see. I'm not sure if it'll be good or not, but I'll go see it. You know, I won't say I was excited in the sense that I w was just dying to get new Star Wars content. I mean, a Star Wars, a new Star Wars movie is always going to be something that I'm going to go see out of curiosity, see what it's about. But kind of like George always said, maybe misrepresented, but the way George always said, hey, there's no more story to tell. I kind of felt that way, too. I felt like if if you're going to go off and make a new movie, it's going to be something that's going to answer questions that I never asked. However, what I was really excited or extremely curious to see is 
how would someone else do Star Wars? Because I've not been fond of George Lucas's choices creatively, be it, you know, questionable things that maybe you, you may or may not think about the prequels, Indiana Jones, the Crystal Skull, various things happening with Clone Wars, particularly when you think about the, the movie that got released in 08 and just you know, the storyline that went in there that like now plans talking about right now. I mean, just brought all those memories back a week before Force Awakens came out. So and I probably have said this multiple times, but I remember leaving Crystal Skull. My wife and I went and saw that movie together and I walk out of the theater. I was like, George Lucas has lost his freaking mind. It's it's as if he doesn't know how to tell a story that people actually want to listen to anymore. So that said, I was like, OK. If someone else was to do Star Wars, what would they do? Well, I had a pretty interesting experience when it came to learning that they had planned, that Disney had planned some movies until infinitum, it seems. We had been working with Disney, and I have a contact there, uh, Miss Michelle Harker, who has been setting us up with interviews and things like that when they have them at the parks, when artists or authors or... The Vinylmations come out. We usually cover that event. So when all this went down, she actually gave me a call and told me that they were going to have this phone call. And uh, here was a phone number. And here was the, the code to basically get in on the conference call and listen to what they had in store. So I listened to, I believe it was the Disney head honcho guy, uh, basically tell us that he had planned a movie every year and spin-off movies and that they were going to expand their footprint in the theme parks. And so I got the information. I believe they were talking to basically shareholders and people like that were on the conference call. So I was really excited to hear it kind of from the horse's mouth or the mouse's mouth. And it started there. Uh, and I figured they, Disney can't do any wrong. You know, and we will discuss some of the wrong they did. I, I, I think we will. Well, you guys know me. I'm the big expanded universe legends slash, you know, books, comics, games guy. So initially for me, it was kind of funny because when they made the announcement, you had Lucas saying, well, I never said there weren't any more films. I just said I wasn't going to make any more, which was just the newest in a line of his line of ever-changing BS about how many episodes there are. First it was one, then it was 12, starting with A New Hope, then it was nine with A New Hope is four, and then there was always ever only going to be six, and there was no more story to tell. And now here we are with a sequel trilogy, and thanks to Disney coming in even more beyond that. So part of it was just kind of a, yeah, you know, we didn't expect these things to come, now here they are. And my initial trepidation, because of being such a big fan of the books and novels and all that stuff, the stuff that makes up the Legends continuity now, was what are they going to do with all that stuff? Because initially they didn't say. And my fear was that we were going to get basically a wrecking ball like what the Clone Wars did, which was, yeah, we're going to shoehorn it into this existing continuity and it's just going to crash through things. The prequels did to a degree, but Clone Wars definitely did in large degree, and you're just going to have to deal with it. They're just going to have to retcon the crap out of things to make it work. But how do you do a sequel trilogy without wiping out huge chunks of the post-Return of the Jedi stuff? So to start with, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. This will be cool to watch, but I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Only then they come out with the announcement, hey, this old continuity, we're just going to call it Legends, separated out as sort of its own thing, and now Clone Wars, 
the previous films, and oh, by the way, this new Rebels series and these new films and all these new novels and comics, they're going to be this whole new canon out there. And I think the idea that it felt like it was going to be a reboot or sort of a relaunch of the franchise actually made me a little calmer about it because it meant it was sort of fertile ground for new things to happen. It didn't have to follow established patterns. And that meant that we could see a Star Wars that was unlike anything that I would have necessarily expected. Going into it with that mindset, I actually found myself more excited as we got closer to it than I was when the announcement happened. A lot of those fears got swept away. And you know what, Nathan? I I was always okay with that, too, because the world of comic books has taught us to think about, divvy out, separate out different continuities. I mean, Batman is a great example for me. You know, I, I really got into Batman with the 89 Tim Burton film, like I presume many people have. But I saw Batman in Super Friends, watched that cartoon. At no point in time did I ever think, wait a minute, they can't portray Batman like this because of how Adam West used to be. Those two don't jive. I mean, no, that's 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 silly. There was a, a a 66 TV series. There was a version of the Batman and Super Friends. There's this Burton Universe film, you know, four movies that have Batman. Batman the Animated Series on Fox in the 90s was its separate thing. And to me, I think that's cool. I have no problems thinking about legends as a different way of telling the story that's not going to interfere with these movies and i guess to clarify for those out there who are sitting there with the whole the whole wait wait but those books were canon before thing keep in mind lucas never saw the expanded universe uh heir to the empire you know the dark horse comics or anything like that he never saw that as part of his reality he always referred to it sort of as there was his reality and there's this alternate or parallel universe out there so what's really basically happened here is that you've still got the idea of there was that continuity out there and there was lucas's stuff it's just that now they've switched and now they're adding to sort of the lucas version of it or that canonical version of it and the stuff on the other side is what they're basically uh, sort of leaving by the wayside that's not really growing very much anymore. Uh, they haven't really changed the rules per se. They've changed their focus. That's one of the most overused terms I've heard in the last, I don't know, two or three years, whenever they initially made that Legends announcement is people saying, oh, I guess that's not canon anymore. And e even I say out loud when I listen to podcasts in my car, like, it never was. It well, was they always on the chopping block to be ignored on a whim. Yeah, they they basically they set up a tiered system, right? George's canon and then continuity canon, so G canon, C canon, T canon with the the television show The Clone Wars fit in between there eventually, and then other levels beneath that. And because they use that word canon to label all of those, people started thinking, well, it's all, you know, it's all one thing, but if you ever paid attention to it at all, all they're basically saying is the old G and T is the core of this new thing and that other stuff is still out there, but yeah, I mean, how many times did we see Lucas come in and trample over something that had come before because it wasn't his universe, and then they scrambled to fix it? This time what we've got is something where there's no need to scramble to fix it because it is kind of a new thing. So I think that, I don't know, a lot of the fears were allayed from that. I know there's a lot of consternation about out there about legends being pushed aside, but would you rather have had a wrecking ball? I mean, come on. But I guess that's kind of and deviating I, from the point, right? A little bit. The way I interpreted that before I kind of get into my lead up was these are alternate continuities. And it, as I've said in 
multiple forums. Just because they've come in and kind of started this new path doesn't mean I can enjoy the old path any less. It's just something different, and I'm okay with that. But like you, I really enjoy the expanded universe. And I initially, it took me a little time to kind of process this because I had kind of come to terms with the fact that you know, the, the mainstay of Star Wars in that respect was done before Disney bought Lucasfilm. I had kind of accepted that there weren't going to be more movies. We might get some TV shows. We might get maybe an animated movie here or there. But that live action Star Wars, especially when the live action TV series didn't seem to find its way anywhere, I, I figured we were done. And then to have Disney buy Lucasfilm and tell us that we're going to be getting a new movie every year, I took some getting used to. Because the other thing is, as a collector, I got terrified when Disney said that the one thing that they felt about Star Wars is it was always under-marketed. I mean, that, that sends shudders to my very soul. But then a movie every year, how is that going to be? And are we going to get quality or are we going to get diluted? And... You know, as the years kind of went on up till this year, I, you know, was kind of on again, off again. I, I to be honest, I, I don't think I put a lot of thought into it. When we saw, when we started seeing actual previews, sure, my excitement got up. But as I got closer to the actual release of the movie, I actually found myself getting nervous. I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is, this is such a change. What if it, what if I don't like it? Because I kept thinking back to the prequels and, I have a very vivid memory of sitting down to Phantom Menace and watching, well, being in maybe the first 10, 15 minutes and going, huh, this isn't what I expected at all. And I was really afraid that that's what I was going to get with The Force Awakens. You know, it's funny that you said that, Jonathan, because I swear the day that The Force Awakens debuted, I mean, I woke up like the rent was due, man. I was so pumped, you know? And a little nervous at the same time. And I wasn't as nervous until I started seeing the trailers and, and things like that. When they started giving us more and more and more. When they withheld a lot of the information, I wasn't as nervous. I was more pumped. And the last two and a half years, two years, I've written down every website that came out with some story or from some trusted source or whatever. Like I said, everything from... BB-8 being a girl, to Obi-Wan's daughter being Lupita Nyong'o, to all these different rumors, Boba Fett being Max von Snydow or whatever. And I wrote all that down. So when the next movie comes out, I can call bull on a lot of these things and we can ignore those things uh, that kind of got us hyped or could be potential spoilers. But this was a roller coaster ride leading up to this movie. I'll tell you that. Well, and you bring up a really interesting point, Baron. I'm going to ask the group this. There are two camps. Obviously, Disney really tried to keep spoilers a minimum, that the information that was out there, there, there wasn't a lot. For the first time that I can remember, they didn't release the soundtrack before the movie. They didn't release the novelization. They were very, very selective about what merchandise came out and what that merchandise said. They really tried to keep a lid on this. So let me ask each of you, did you enter this Spoiler-filled or spoiler-free? I inadvertently entered this spoiler-filled. I am a person who prefers not to have spoilers. And I, I watched the teaser trailer because 
that's that's kind of what I will allow myself. It's like, oh, okay, I'll watch the teaser trailer and, and that'll get me excited. And that's all I really want. I didn't want to watch the other trailers. I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't want to read articles or watch, you know, interviews on TV. But about, it was like a year ago, a bunch of rumors started flying and my husband, David, was reading about them and he just blabs. He was like, here are all these rumors. And one of them was about Han Solo and the fate, his fate in this movie. And he was like, that would be crazy. And for some reason that stuck in my head. And I was like, that sounds too ludicrous to be a lie. And I couldn't get rid of it. And so leading up to this movie, all I felt was dread <laughs> as we started getting towards the date and we bought the tickets and I really started to get uncomfortable. It's like, I don't want to watch this. I don't want to see that happen. Like this is really uncomfortable for me. So when in the theater, when we finally get to that point, I was like white knuckled and cringing and just desperately uncomfortable because I had known kind of for a year that it was coming and it was horrible. So <laughs> I'm going to be a lot more careful with spoilers in the future. You know, I was very casual with the spoilers in the sense that, yeah, hey, if Disney officially released a trailer, I would absolutely see it. If there was one that popped up in China that somebody put a Facebook thing on, yeah, I'd go ahead and watch it because I've I generally believe that, especially with movies like this, that what you get out of the trailer is going to set you up with context. It's going to at least give you an idea what the movie's going to be about without telling you too much about how everything goes down and what the the end game really is. And I, I think the Force Awakens trailers were absolutely that. I I did a pretty good job of predicting, guessing, and piecing some things together in my mind, but I certainly didn't see it coming together the way it did. I mean, I, for instance, didn't really know how Han was going to get integrated into the movie. You know, we see him here and there, but I, I didn't I didn't get a lot of the things that we, we saw there. So by and large, yeah, I'm going to go out on Force Friday, look at the toys, get an idea of what the characters look like, what the aesthetic is. But no, I don't want to know between Ray and Finn, which one of them is going to be the, 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 the Leia versus the Han versus the Luke in terms of, you know, what what their character role really is. So let me let me get that from the movie. So. I'm not going to like scream at anybody for, hey, dude, that's spoilers. I'm going to jump off the Internet for a week leading up to the movie. Whatever I casually get, I casually get. But I sought out nothing. Well, I watched the trailers and such, of course, just to kind of see, you know, what there was to see to get excited. I found it was a little bit of an odd experience seeing those kind of realizing that it was real, of course. But really, when it came to spoilers, I kind of liked the fact that Disney didn't allow very many of them out there. And I didn't actively go seek many. I'd run into a few, but I find that looking back on it, probably maybe a quarter of them were actually true. The others weren't. So I don't really feel like I was very spoiled going into it. In fact, really the only spoiler for the film that I kind of wish I hadn't seen. And granted, this is with me going into episodes one through three completely spoiled for each one, trying to stay away from that this time. Uh, it was actually that controversial card of the toy. Um, that Star Wars Action News got all embroiled with when Disney kind of reared their automatic copyright heads and whatnot. Um, I really wish I had not seen a toy card of Rey holding Luke's slash Anakin's lightsaber. Because having seen only Finn with it in the trailers, I would have liked to have been surprised when she grabs it out of the air and starts using it. Um, otherwise, though, 
I pretty much stayed completely spoiler free outside of the trailers and such just because I didn't quite know what to consider true and what not. I did, however, delve into all of those Journey to the Force Awakens books. I mean, right down to those ebooks that got released very, very shortly before the film. And I gotta say, for something called the Journey to the Force Awakens, that was a really bad marketing label because I don't feel like almost any of those books and comics actually told me a freaking thing about what to expect from the movie. Uh, barring Lost Stars that gave us a little bit of background on the Battle of Jakku, I don't feel like I learned anything pertinent to The Force Awakens from any of those materials. So I felt like I should have gone into it knowing more. Officially. But apparently I didn't. And Nathan, I'm kind of where you are. I... Well, actually, I think I'm a combination of everybody. I read as much of the lead-up material as possible. You know, the Force, the Journey to the Force Awakens. I read Aftermath, big disappointment there. Uh, Lost Stars, all the some of the young reader books that now I kind of get how they fit in, but I didn't at the time. And I, you know, beyond that, I really tried to stay away from spoilers. I watched the previews, but I stayed away from people making predictions, get, even getting into those discussions with people where I had, I would have people at work or friends come up to me going, well, we haven't seen Luke in the previews yet. And what do you think? Do you think Kylo Ren is actually Luke? And I'm like, not talking about it. Not, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and walking away, people, people were a little put off, I think. But walking into this, I really did try to stay as clean as I could, given how inundated we've been with Star Wars lately and how they are so over-marketing it, even to the point where I bought a lot of the toys for the film, Force Friday up till the release, I didn't open one, didn't open anything, kept it all sealed and put away, and I, I figured after the movie, then I'd open them. I am kind of like Jerry, I guess. I'm more casual. You know, spoilers never really bothered me. I mean, I know what Moby Dick's about, before I read the book, and I read the book, and it was still a good book. It's still a classic. So that's kind of how I feel about movies. If it's a good movie, if it's going to be a classic, a fantastic movie, it, it really doesn't matter. Half of the things that we were spoiled on weren't even in the movie. Anyway, where the hell was Constable Zuvio? So me talking about what could happen in a movie, to me, is not spoilers, because we basically didn't get anything that I talked with my friends about. Uh, that I thought was going to be in the movie. And the things that, like Jerry said, that I guessed out were kind of true. Like the whole thing of seeing Ray with a lightsaber. I mean, if you don't buy batteries, do you buy batteries? Because they showed Ray with a lightsaber in the battery commercial. They showed her to use in the Force. She looks just like Luke Skywalker. I mean, it doesn't... If you didn't think that she was going to pick up a lightsaber in that movie, then I'm not sure how your brain works. So those things didn't bother me. The spoilers. And in this day and age, what I've noticed is after I saw the film, you really have to go digging for spoilers. I mean, you really have to go to TMZ and dig for those spoilers. You really have to search Han Solo's who dies in The Force Awakens in order for these these websites to pop up. Because pretty much everybody was really respectful on Facebook that were my friends on the way up leading up to the release of this movie. So for me, you really have to go digging for spoilers to get them. And they don't bother me. So before we get into the movie itself, why don't we talk about what we did, if anything, to get ready for this movie? 
I mean, Nathan and I have both said that we read the books and, you know, we, we took in the official material that didn't spoil the movie, but kind of maybe gave us some context and some background on some of the things that were going on. What about the rest of you? Did you do anything? Not really. Um, we, I just saw it last night. So I, it's only been about 24 hours since I processed this movie. And like, we just, we made sure we got tickets kind of early so that we'd have tickets for opening weekend. And then we just kind of put them away and didn't really think about it that much. But like I was saying before, like I was kind of just dreading because I had a horrible, you know, idea of what was going to happen. And I, that was something that I particularly did not want to see in the film. So I, I stopped thinking about it. I just kind of put it out of my head and didn't talk about it and didn't think about it and was really kind of deeply uncomfortable yesterday afternoon, like in the theater waiting for the movie to start. So like, no, I was kind of avoiding it, actually. So you needed your tickets and um, a mood stabilizer. Pretty much. <laughs> Maybe a teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't really do anything to prepare for it. I mean, on Force Friday, I picked up three action figures because at the end of the day, I actually thought the, even though they're five points of articulation figures, I thought the Kylo Ren figure looked cool. I thought Captain Phasma looked cool. I thought the Stormtrooper looked, looked cool. And I, I usually have a base Stormtrooper, Clone Trooper figure from, from any movie anyway. So I picked them up. I thought they were well sculpted nicely and and looked good i liked the cards and everything so i picked up three figures i picked up a lot of those journey to the force awakens trading cards that tops did but that was mostly because of the ot content i mean two-thirds of that set is star wars empire and jedi and i i really dug the vintage aesthetic to it but truth be known my star wars and maybe that's an overused term but just you know you know what i mean when i say that but i enjoy i, I enjoy all of it but my Star Wars, my hardcore Star Wars that I have an emotional connection to because of nostalgia, because of the years, because it just I was in the right place at the right time in my youth watching those movies and could uh, fantasize with it, et cetera, et cetera, was Star Wars Empire and Jedi. So nothing else is going to hit me like that. So for me, I am for being a big Star Wars fan, I am watching Force Awakens kind of as casually as possible. I'm taking in the information much differently than a casual moviegoer. But to me, it was just, I better go pre-purchase the tickets because they're just selling fast. I I had a guy text me the moment they went, you know, live that night. They they showed the trailer Monday Night Football. And I was like, man, I don't, I really don't want to pre-buy tickets because I'm not sure when I want to see it. Am I going to see it Friday night with the family or Thursday night with some buddies? Or am I going to have to wait till Saturday? I'm just going to have to see what my weekend looks like. And that was my mindset. But I eventually picked up tickets for Friday showings because it kind of occurred to me that, oh, I, I may I may have to do this in order to get a, a, a decent showing. So, you know, really, I'll put it to you this way. I didn't go to Star Wars Celebration this year, but I, I, I kept up with the news. And the thing I was most excited about learning more about and just getting information on was Battlefront. It wasn't The Force Awakens. Baron, did you do anything to prepare, watch any movies, read any books? Oh, yeah. We are lucky that we live out here in California because a lot of events happen out here. So events that were Star Wars based that kind of led up to the movie we went to. We went to Disneyland and did Season of the Force. And my whole mindset was to see the kind of new Jakku footage that they were going to have and ride Star Tours and see the new Jakku battle, the new Jakku scenes in Star Wars. And 
my purpose was going there was to pick up all of these specialty Star Wars items like popcorn holders. They had TIE Fighter popcorn holders and BB-8 cups and Han and Carbonite popcorn buckets and things like that. And we took all of those things to the movies. So that's how I prepare, just getting into the feel of it, getting into the season of the force, getting into just the atmosphere of, of ready to see this movie with my family. So that's basically what I did. I didn't go out and try to get any more tidbits that were already out there. I mean, the death of Han totally surprised me. I had no idea, which I guess was good. And that's all I did. You know, I did basically the regular things. We went to Celebration. We went to Anaheim D23 convention and just soaked up basically what was out there. But I have to agree with you. The hype for Battlefront, if if it wasn't more than The Force Awakens for me, then it was right up there. So while the rest of us maybe did little things here and there, I know Nathan took a slightly different approach to getting ready. Nathan, care to enlighten us? Yeah, I went a little extreme. Over the span of the last about, I guess, month and a half or two months, what I did, and granted this was easier for me, I guess, because I teach from home, so a lot of time is spent here even when I've got the computer up, uh, I went through and did basically a canon video marathon. So I watched episode one, episode two, all of the Clone Wars in chronological order, then episode three, all of Rebels up to where it you know, left off before we come back in January, and then picked up again with episodes four, five, and six. I finished actually the day before we were going to go see the movie, which was Wednesday. Uh, we did a pre-purchase of tickets. Our tickets actually, our local theater was doing renovations, so we couldn't buy tickets until the Tuesday before the film came out. But the good news was that when we bought them ahead of time, so many other people had pre-purchased at other theaters, I guess. When we got there, I mean, there was, it was maybe half full at the 12.40 a.m. showing on Thursday night slash Friday morning. So we had a nice experience seeing it. And my plan actually is tomorrow morning. I'm going to go see it. We saw it 2D before, my wife and I. Tomorrow morning on my own, I'm going to go see the 4K XD 3D version on that gigantic screen. And in the interim between, it's the 21st when I'm going to see it the second time. It was the the night of the 17th, seeing it the first time, uh, but morning of the 18th, I have read The Visual Dictionary, Incredible Cross-Sections, Ray's Survival Guide, Before the Awakening, and the Novelization. So now I've got all this new context that I didn't have seeing it the first time that I'm going to have in seeing it the second time to see if that changes my perceptions at all of the film. So yeah, I was a little bit uh, on the extreme side. Now, getting to the movie itself, I pre-purchased tickets like many of you, but I went a little bit overboard. I got for the 17th. It happened to be my birthday, so I decided that was what I was gonna, how I was going to spend my day. I was originally planning to take in a marathon, go to one of the theaters that was showing all six films with a lead-up to The Force Awakens. It wasn't in the cards because of work obligations, but I got tickets for the... 7 o'clock 2D showing, and then I had tickets for the 10 o'clock 3D IMAX showings. That was Thursday night, and then on Friday, I saw a 3D showing someplace else. So prior to this discussion, I've seen The Force Awakens three times, and 
I will tell you, every time I watched it, I had a slightly different take on things. We'll get to what everyone's impressions are in a moment. But I know, Nathan, you saw it the, the night of. Jerry, you saw it the next day. Jen, you saw it yesterday. Baron, when did you take in the movie? You know, I was just like you. It was just the opposite, though. I had a 7 o'clock showing and a 10-15 showing. But the 7 o'clock showing was a IMAX 3D showing. It was a true IMAX. I've never heard of this 4D thing that you guys are talking about or where the the movie theater shoots water at you or steam or whatever. We have some pretty good movie theaters out here in Calabasas. And so the 10 o'clock showing was the regular 2D showing. And I, I've seen it twice. And... I thought about seeing it a third time, and I just couldn't do it. Now, Jerry, did you get a chance to see it just the once, or have you seen it multiple times? No, I've seen it twice. I saw it Friday morning around 9.50 a.m. in a 2D presentation, about a half-full theater. And then later that night, I saw a 3D showing at, at one of the nearly brand new theaters in Cincinnati. It's, I mean, it's about six weeks old and I, the theater I went, it was three real 3d, but then had those D box seats where the seat vibrates and shakes based on the, the, the sound effects. And, you know, when, when a ship's taking flight, you kind of have this like, you know, universal Disney 3d ride type feel to your chair. It was fantastic. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, it's, to me, 3D with the motion seats is like the way to go see this movie. It's interesting that you say that because I was posting on Facebook that I was seeing it, you know, 2D, 3D, IMAX. And I have a friend, actually, he was my roommate freshman year in college. And apparently he works for the company that does the code for 4DX. So he's posting you got to go see it in 4DX. Why haven't you seen it in 4DX? Come on, do me a favor, see it in 4DX. And he's even sending me, he lives in California now, but he's even sending me the address of the theater near me that has it in 4DX. And what I found amusing is he's posting all this and friends of mine are going, oh, wow, we have that near here. Oh, we're going to go see it like that too. And I was even talking to my wife and I think I'm probably going to go see it a fourth time, maybe not right away, but I will see it in that 4DX, so maybe I'll get back to everyone on my impressions of that type of format. Although I'm not sure I really want water sprayed in my face, but we'll see. Though the the next way I think I might see it, because I think we're supposed to get some warmer weather later this week, is see it at a drive-in. That might be my last last way of see it after I get an IMAX in. Now, this would be a great movie to see in the drive-in, just, just to see a Star Wars movie in a drive-in. We have them out here, but they're closed for the season. I'm kind of hoping that Maybe next summer he will find a way to show this. But, Jen, you told us you saw it, but you didn't tell us what format you saw it in. The only theater that we could get tickets for, um, the, t the tickets sold out so incredibly quickly. They sold them probably almost a month and a half ago here. And they were going so fast that we just, the only theater we could get um, was a local one. They had, um, the nice thing about that theater is they actually have assigned seats. So we didn't have to show up and like line up really early and like jockey for a place, which was was really kind of relaxing compared to some of the other Star Wars experiences I've had on opening weekend. Um, but it was just a regular 2D, really good sound system, but it wasn't like a special situation. So just plain regular 2D. I guess I should toss in here. Uh, I 
had a chance to do the one that had the the assigned seating and we had the uh, reclining seats and everything very leisurely experience but those who've listened to Star Wars Beyond the Films know that my theater experiences in this area have been absolutely horrible when it comes to the idiots in the crowd who can't shut up who talk back to the screen who answer the phone in the middle and all that rude crap that makes me really hate going to the movie theater that was not the case this time granted it was a midnight showing, only about half full, but everybody was extremely respectful. They weren't a really riled up, excited crowd, but very respectful during seeing it, which was nice. Now, my crowd was just the opposite. The first time I saw it, the seven o'clock showing, when we're going through the previews, everybody's like, oh my God, just stop with the previews. We're sick of the previews. And when they finally went and we saw the Lucasfilm logo, and then the, you know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the crowd cheered. I mean, people were just cheering, and I saw people next to us just hugging each other. I mean, everyone was so wound up and excited <laughs> by this. Wasn't it great? I mean, at the first showing, I saw it at two different theaters. They allowed everyone to wear, to, to costume, to have their lightsabers, to have their masks and everything. I mean, there was a lot of police there, which there's always a lot of police around here. But there was when, when the when the opening crawl came on and it, there was no Fox fanfare. It just basically went Star Wars. And then, dun, 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 you know, in the opening crawl, I put my lightsaber up. People put their lightsabers up. You know, uh, real quick. And the, the one thing that I thought was interesting about the obviously we knew we weren't going to get the 20th century Fox fanfare. But I was surprised that when the Lucasfilm logo was there that we didn't have any music because if you watch the Star Wars movies on iTunes, like you, you bought the iTunes movies, they actually place a piece of John Williams score over top of the Lucasfilm logo before you get a long time ago and a far, far away. You get the, you know, one of those. I, I think that's the one, but you just get a clip of score on top of that. So I thought that's what we were going to get in the theater, but then Lucasfilm is just up there by itself without any music. I just thought that was a little weird. Oh, but the music that they use for those digital versions, I, I wish it was the one that you quoted there, Jerry. It's it's a piece of the end music, I think, from Empire that they used in the first special oh, edition right. trailer. And it's so truncated the way that it's done that it's jarring. Something like that. That's it. I know it didn't. It absolutely did not work on the digitals. I was elated that not only was there no Disney logo, so nobody would throw popcorn at the screen or stupid crap like that because of all the fanboys saying, no, we hate the Disney logo, but no music at all. It was a calm opening, no truncated crap. We know we're not going to have to deal with that for this release, hopefully on home video either. Oh, come on. Tell me it wouldn't have been somewhat hilarious if like they had that Lucasfilm logo up and you had Tinkerbell come up and hit it with her uh, her little wand. Oh, my God. I would have threw up in my mouth. <laughs> Please <laughs> don't do that to me. That would have that would have. Oh, my God. Don't, don't. You know, now at some point, because they didn't do it on the first Marvel films, I don't think we'll have to get one of those little like scrolly weird Marvel type logos that has like scenes from Marvel comics zipping by in the background or something now. That's why I thought it was funny when people were like, oh, you're going to have the Magic Kingdom in front of it. It's like we never have on any Marvel movie. So why would you why would you think they would have done that to Star Wars? Yeah, again, that was one of the websites that I wrote down as well. Uh, I'll tell you who said that after the call. But <laughs> was his name about... Super Shadow? <laughs> K 
Can we talk about that opening crawl, though? Because that was the thing, the opening Lucasfilm, no Fox fanfare, and then the opening crawl. What did you guys think about that opening crawl? Well, the thing that struck me, and I had actually planned that maybe we talk about the music a little bit later, but the Star Wars theme as that opening crawl was going on, and I know you may be talking about more the content than the crawl itself, Baron, but the music was different. I was expecting the exact same music that we got in all six previous films, but this was different. It sounded different. Mm -hmm. It was different, and I'm talking about it all. I'm talking about the music. I'm talking about the words. I, I want everybody's impression on that opening crawl because that's very important to us. Not only is this movie a different version, a different person's version of Star Wars, that opening sequence and crawl is a different person's version of Star Wars. And I did find it a little jarring the first time I saw it. Then I got over it. But as far as the content of that crawl, it was interesting. I was trying to figure out and almost reconcile. I think I've done that because I'm in the process of reading the novelization. Because the thing that when we left Star Wars, I mean, with the end of Return of the Jedi, it was the rebellion versus the Empire. And now we don't have the rebellion. We have a new republic. But then there's a resistance and we don't have the Empire. We have the First Order. I was a little taken out of it. I'll be honest. I was able to get back in, but I was a little taken out. Say what you will about the prequels. And this movie has given me a newfound respect for the prequels. This opening crawl made no sense. It, it, it made no sense. Honestly, I actually thought that the, the crawl was excellent. I loved how, number one, it didn't have anything to do with taxations and trade routes and things. You're just like, man, this is just mumbo jumbo. I totally don't get. They're saying, hey, Luke Skywalker's vanished. General Organa is sending a pilot on a mission to go find his whereabouts. And meanwhile, the First Order's coming up. And, you know, to me, it paralleled a lot of the New Hope one because you're like, okay, a Death Star. Okay, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's telling me that there's a Death Star. And, you know, Rebel Plans and... Leia's on her first mission, and we pick right up in the action. And I, I thought it was good. It was a great hook because it immediately told me this is about finding Luke Skywalker, and it didn't have to burn a lot of energy and a lot of oil to just get me to the to the concept to the to, to the context of this movie, which which I liked. So I I looked at my wife; she saw it with me uh, on my first view, and I looked over and I said. Man, that crawl was excellent because I, I thought the prequel crawls were were just drivel. You know, the, the the episode three one being the worst. War, evils everywhere. Blah blah blah. I mean, it was. I wish I wish Tom Kane had read the episode three one in front of Clone Wars episode. I mean, I just the, the prequel ones were just absolute garbage in their crawls. But this one I dug. I agree with Jerry. I had fun with this crawl. I liked it. I felt like the font looked a little different to me. And the, the music, like you were saying, Jonathan, did sound different to me. But I was okay with that. I, I expected there to be some like minor differences. Because this is not Lucas's Star Wars. This is a slightly different hand at the reins. And, and I was okay with little things like that. And, and like Jerry was saying, I felt like this particular crawl got me really engaged really quickly. It was like, okay, I know exactly what's going on. I don't know every single piece of backstory for everything, but like I have enough of a framework that when they launch us into whatever action is going to start this film, I'm I'm going to be clear on what's happening. And like I felt like it really brought me in and I was engaged. 
I gotta agree. I thought this jumped us into it very well. It gave us a quick context of what was starting out. Uh, I like the fact that they just start out with Luke Skywalker has vanished, which is that big kind of dun, dun, dun. In fact, the two radio shows that I listened to that happen to have hosts that are fans of Star Wars will said, you know, those first four words are going to explain a whole lot about the movie and why you're not going to see much Luke, et cetera, et cetera. And, and why uh, there was so much question of where is Luke Skywalker and where is he in the trailers and everything. Uh, I thought it worked well, though. It's sort of like a chess game. It laid out Luke, it laid out Leia, it laid out this pilot on a mission looking for the old ally, and it put out on there Republic, Resistance, First Order. The thing about it, though, was that even within the movie itself, we don't get a lot of context for that. We get little hints, very much like A New Hope. It gave us hints of things without providing a ton of context. And I don't know. I, I like the fact that they lay it out there. I think it made it easy enough to follow but the fact that it's not given further context later when we sort of expect that now thanks to the prequels, I think could make some people, even seeing this really a second time, would go through that crawl and kind of want to know, wait a second, Resistance, Republic, I need more clarity on that. So it's great for jumping into it. If you can just kind of grab it and go with it like the pieces are on the board, now the game starts. But I can, I can see where some people would think that it's just a little too vague in that second of the three paragraphs. The opening crawl was confusing. I got scared when I read that opening crawl. Luke has vanished. I'm like, oh, here we go. No Luke. This is why, because Luke is not going to be in this movie. I was confused. At the end, we see them blow up the Death Star, and they create a new Republic, don't they? Well, who's in charge? If it's not Leia and Lando and Akbar and the rest of the heroes, who's in charge? They're not the Republic. They're the Resistance. And if the Republic is backing them, who are they resisting? The First Order is not in charge anymore. They're not in power. So it was very confusing for me, knowing what I know from Empire Strikes Back. What is this op opening crawl trying to tell me? The whole mission for the First Order is to find Luke and not destroy the Resistance or take back power. Their whole mission is to find Luke for what? He's vanished. He's gone. He's not even fighting you. Why do you have to fight him? It was very confusing. It got me worried, that opening crawl. Now, Baron, to be fair, I think you're raising good points here. And I, I've read enough of your thoughts on Facebook already to say, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to be a little bit of a Baron sympathizer here because I, I see some of the angles you're, you're, you're coming from, and I'm sure you'll reveal your thoughts as we go. I do think your thoughts around, hey, I don't get why a Republic exists, but there's a resistance that seems like it's separate from the Republic and a first order. I mean, you know, the general themes are there. I mean, we've seen in the novels that the empire just didn't disappear. They maintain control in some areas and build themselves up and, you know, whatever, while the new Republic's forming. And there's still a little bit of a push and pull. You know, it's not the robot chicken thing where they said, oh, well, they destroyed the emperor and the Death Star. And you, you had to do both. And now the war's over. No, it's still going to exist. I mean, it was one battle station, a significant battle station, some cruisers, and the leader. But there, there, there's, there's empire all over the place. So I get that. But I didn't quite get why there's a difference between a resistance and a new republic. Why are they resisting? It, it's, it's one faction against the other. So why does it kind of feel like there's three then? So you're right. However, I didn't pull that out of the opening crawl. My initial comments was just on the crawl. The, the crawl, I felt like, gave me good background. 
drop me right into the action and we're on Poe Dameron's mission. But your points in general are valid. I think the thing about the three factions gets confusing for some because in a lot of ways, this is another of these historical parallels, right? I mean, we've drawn historical parallels, you know, to, you know, the, the fall of republics and how they become dictatorships, right? Like the Roman Empire back for the prequels. And of course, we've got the Nazi regime and such uh, playing into the way that they created the original trilogy's empire. They've said kind of going into this that this was essentially a story about a Cold War. And you've got a situation where about a year after the events of Return of the Jedi, there's the Battle of Jakku. After that last-ditch effort by the Empire, there is this galactic concordance, this treaty that's that's formed. And it essentially splits the galaxy into there's Imperial territory, there's New Republic territory, and there's this sort of demilitarized zone in between, almost like North and South Korea, essentially. Uh, or an Iron Curtain separating the East and the West back during the Cold War that we know. And... I mean, what do we think about when we think about a Cold War? We think about escalating tensions, but you don't want to have a hot war. You don't want to actually start direct conflict because it could grow into something like the Galactic Civil War in that case all over again. So you have this small group. I guess in my mind, it never was an issue mentally because looking at history, I mean, you get this small group who wants to act, who wants to stand up against the aggression that's happening that the leaders are too afraid to deal with. Uh, like It's like the Soviet Union making aggressive acts and the U.S. not really wanting to respond directly to it because they're afraid what happens. Do we get a nuclear war out of it? So instead, what do you do? you got to have people who are sort of willing to do something on their own, almost like the American flyers back in World War One who went and flew battles with the British because the U.S. wasn't willing to get rid of our neutrality and jump into a conflict with uh, the central powers. So as a historical guy, to me, th this was not... An issue it was not really all that confusing at all, but I'm sort of the oddity, right? Because I've got that history background. It's what my profession is. This is something that probably did need a little more context in the film. We're going to find as we go along, that's really my biggest complaint about the film, is that as great as it was, it didn't provide much context. And in a situation like this one, we were looking for more context. You don't go into A New Hope looking for context because it was the first film. Now we've got six. We know where these characters were 30 years ago. We want the context, and in many ways it wasn't provided. And at the very least, Disney, if you're, if you're going to put all the books in Legends continuity, go a little bit out of your way to explain to us how this is going to be different. I, I felt like the Resistance was a scraping along, lucky-to-be-surviving sort of rebellion-like group, which they really shouldn't have been. For what it's worth, that does have to do with the fact that they don't have direct support from the Republic. They can't get open support because that would be essentially the Republic going to war. They have to be sort of that ragtag band. I got the sense, both from this and from the stuff that I've read since, uh, in those few days since, that in this case, the Resistance is probably more poorly funded and poorly backed than even the Rebel Alliance was, because the Rebel Alliance was its own entity, and now here's this group who kind of has to work somewhat under the radar of the government they support. Now, let's get into the meat of this movie, because there is a lot going on here, and it kind of kicks off, you know, with, with action. We don't have a lot of buildup. The first thing we see is this gigantic Star Destroyer something that we haven't seen before sort of crossing. And I really liked how that looked where you get this just almost like the shadow blocking out the star and then you get the landers coming down. 
this was a different take on Star Wars. And I have to say, from the get-go, I really did like it. How do you feel? How do you guys feel about how this movie launched us in back into the galaxy far, far away? Well, for me, as soon as the ships came on screen, I was into it. We got right into a battle. We got introduced to one of our heroes. We got got to see BB-88, or excuse me, BB-8, which everybody loves. I, I don't think that there are universal truths here that people love the stars of this movie, and they basically carried this movie. So when we got introduced to Poe and this and the new Stormtroopers and everything, I was right into it. And it didn't bother me that the Stormtroopers looked like Donald Duck wearing a Stormtrooper costume. I was into it. <laughs> I love the fact that they did jump pretty much right into the action. I mean, we had the Stormtroopers coming down. I thought that was kind of a... A surprise. I mean, this is sort of like the uh, showing them getting ready aboard the landing craft as they're about to land. And that's very more militaristic, I think, than a lot of what we've seen before. It sort of felt like a different style of opening. But to then jump in and here's Poe in the middle of his mission. He's right there on the front lines. The attack happens. Poe is immediately introduced to Kylo Ren and so forth. I mean, that whole sequence to me felt like traditional Star Wars, right? Jump straight into the action, which was something that, unfortunately, I kind of felt like episodes one and two didn't do. Like, we strayed away from this idea that the story is already going and we're just kind of jumping in at a point. We didn't have a lot of build-up to it. We had to sort of catch up based on the crawl and what we see going along the way. I thought it was a fantastic way to kick this thing off, especially since, again, this is one of these things that I like about the film— to me, the momentum just kept going throughout the entire film. It kicks off, hits the gas, and just goes. The other Star Wars films, to me, have always had different pacing issues. There's a point in each film where it feels like the, the, the story just starts to drag in every one of the other six. This one just charges straight through. And that way, it's a lot more like 2009 Star Trek by J.J. Abrams than it is like the other Star Wars films. I felt like this really paralleled A New Hope. Like... We weren't on a ship, but it was a very similar situation where you have someone who doesn't want to be caught putting information in a droid, getting and then getting sending the droid off to go wander a desert planet and then getting captured. And the, you know, stormtroopers showing up and killing a lot of people. And you have the new baddie showing up and showing off some of his like force abilities a little bit. Although Kylo Ren's force abilities are a little bit more interesting, I guess. But it, it felt very, very parallel to A New Hope. And I think that was very deliberate on Abrams' part as a kind of way of hopefully, I think in his mind, comforting the fans to say, like, look, see, you're in good hands. I like I know this pacing very well, and, and I'm going to make sure I, I'm faithful to that. It will be interesting at you know a later date when we have the home video release of this to kind of match the pacing to the original a new hope because i think you guys are right i think we're going to see that it's very very closely aligned as far as action scenes and pacing but i did enjoy how it just threw us right into it it didn't give us sort of a chance to stop and think and argue about <laughs> trade disputes or other things as jerry mentioned earlier Oh, my God. Stop bringing up the trade disputes. At least with the trade disputes, you knew where you were at. You knew what was going on and where people stood. 
Okay, you didn't know if it was the Republic or the resistance or whatever. They explained it to you. And as a intelligent person, I think I'm intelligent. I like things to be explained to me. So <laughs> one of the things I liked about this opening scene was that it really redeemed the stormtroopers. I mean, you have all those jokes about how stormtroopers can't hit anything, how, you know, you play for the Lakers because they'll never hit anything, never make a shot. These stormtroopers were killing innocent villagers. Okay. It's redeeming who these stormtroopers are. I think this scene did more for stormtroopers than even the clone troopers did for stormtroopers as far as being a military might that would exterminate you on command. It certainly did make them feel like more of a threat than we've seen in a while. They weren't the bumbling, I mean, I guess, uh, comedy, you know, relief that we have seen in other situations. They, I mean, literally, they're stormtroopers. They and they storm it, and you can't really pull one over. They they win this fight. What did you guys think? Because I, I think it's an interesting twist. Is that it? Kind of came off that they're just one step away from being clones in the sense that they're conditioned and trained, uh, brainwashed to be killing machines. How'd you guys think about that concept and Finn kind of breaking free of it? You know, when they talk about that later, that he was trained since, that he was removed as an infant and trained since birth, I'm like, oh, I guess they learned from the Jedi. And, and reconditioned, and it was just kind of creepy, I thought. Pretty, pretty evil, pretty wicked. Again, this is one thing that I found very interesting as far as the character of Finn, and I know we'll talk more about him later. In this opening sequence, he has another trooper die in front of him. And it apparently has an emotional impact because then he can't join in the execution of the villagers. And it kind of sets a, you know, in motion steps that'll eventually have him leave the First Order, help Poe escape, and then try to just get as far away from this conflict as he can. But one little misstep that I that I found was he had no he couldn't kill those villagers, but he had no problem mowing down all the other troopers in that bay. Yes, we're going to talk about the rules. And some are going to agree that there are Star Wars rules and some are going to agree that there are no Star Wars rules. And some are going to agree that it's a new Star Wars era so you can make your own new rules up. But they don't even follow their own rules in this movie sometimes. Like you said, he's so broken up about this one stormtrooper, but then he kills half a dozen to escape. And since when does a blaster bolt make you bleed? You know, a lot of this, when it comes to the stormtroopers, and to rewind just a moment, I, I would argue that for those who are watching the episode one the first time, the question of, well, why is a, a trade group blockading a planet with an army. Why do they have an army in the first place and so on? And and why do they need to make a treaty, uh, like a blockade legal in the... What? There was a lot more confusing about episode one that I think Barron's giving it credit for. Um, the stormtroopers in this case, understand these are a different breed of stormtroopers. They are purposely designed to be much more like the clones. Um, and again, canon being everything connected everything equal they set this up recently in servants of the empire in the not of the uh, book the secret academy the idea that general hux's dad realized that you need something very much like 
the clones, in terms of being bred as troopers from a very young age or taken away from their families and taken in at a very young age, in order to make them as efficient of soldiers as the clone troopers were, but you can't have them be clones because, like the Separatists, somebody could just hit you with a virus designed to go after that specific DNA and wipe out your entire army. So they laid the seeds for this, one of the few things they laid seeds for early uh, and it makes sense, you know, keep them individualized or keep them from being individualized for the most part. Uh, as for Finn and his reaction, Finn is portrayed as this character that has empathy. Again, going back into where do we get the backstory? In this case, Before the Awakening has three stories, Finn's, Ray's, and Poe's leading up to the events of the film. Finn's focuses in on that empathy and, and what does Captain Phasma uh, think of him because of that empathy? Uh, we find that and I didn't know this till the Visual Dictionary, the trooper that dies isn't just a random trooper. This is a guy that he was training with that we see in his story in Before the Awakening. So he's a very different type of trooper, but it sort of fit this idea that he's, it's his first mission and he's being pushed through all these training procedures, but now he actually has to see how it works on the ground in his first mission is to kill a bunch of basically innocent people. And for someone with any empathy at all, that's going to cause them to snap. When it comes to the others, he's attacking other soldiers to escape. People that he sees as essentially guilty of what he would have been guilty of if he had pulled the trigger. Uh, there's a difference between innocent villagers and people who are considered culpable in those events. I don't see that as, a, as an issue. But the, they definitely have been laying the groundwork for this whole stormtrooper, like a clone trooper thing for a while now. Which is kind of surprising one of the few journey to force awakens things that didn't have that label that still led to it more than the others well nathan i'm going to challenge you on this i liked this and i didn't really have a problem with finn's shift but when you watch this three times as i did you notice that the villagers are the ones that take the first shots the stormtroopers rush out of their transports the villagers start shooting first so you know, it's not like he was hitting innocent villagers. They were hitting innocent villagers. The If they had just run out, they could have, like, taken over the, the village. But the villagers, I mean, you see it. They're dead stormtroopers on the ground as Finn comes out of the transport. So let's talk about Finn a little bit. Let's let's take a look at this character. It's one of the the core three that I think we're going to see in this film and possibly the later films. What do you think of this character? It's an ex-Imperial, which I think is something new in the Star Wars universe for a main character. Well, other than Han, but we never really see him leave the Empire. And who knows if that's even uh, canon anymore. Sorry, use the canon word. I really liked Finn. And maybe I'm predisposed because like, you know, I'm a clone person and he's like kind of a variant of that in a way but like i really liked finn i feel like he is a the idea of him of a of a clone or excuse me of a stormtrooper or any imperial leaving the empire is not really seen in in any of the movies so i'm, I'm going to kind of disregard any other stuff but that's that's new it's fresh and i i actually really like that and i like his character i i felt like he was kind of a little bit childlike in that he just wanted some friends he just he just really enjoyed making connections with people he was pretty good at it and just a very kind-hearted person trapped in a very miserable situation and very afraid and, and i felt like that was something we haven't seen yet in star wars and and it was kind of fun and i liked the, the way the actor portrayed the character i really i enjoyed it i loved finn his character as among some of the other characters we're going to talk about are 
actually the redeeming qualities of this movie. He's very enjoyable. He's likable. He must have the lung capacity and tidal volume of a triathlon athlete because the first 15 <laughs> minutes he's just breathing so hard all the time. But I like Finn. He's funny. He's a character that I can relate to because I don't have any Jedi powers. I'm being thrown into this world basically like he is trying to survive and knowing that he wants to do something to change, doesn't know if he has the power to, having to get friends and and I liked him. He's funny. John Boyega and and, and it doesn't ha- it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that in Boyega's personal life that he's such a big fan of Star Wars, that he's such a geek like me that he's more excited about him being in the movie than I am. And so all of those combined and seeing his performance in the movie, I immediately liked him. I immediately wanted him to win. And I cannot say that about some of the other characters that they've introduced. You know, we are do a podcast about Rebels. It took me a little time to get to know and like those characters. Here, Finn, I immediately like him. And that is very powerful for this movie. You know, I'd like to just start off by saying that I think John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, and Oscar Isaac, I think all three gave wonderful performances. I, I think they acted well. I mean, I'm not talking high art and in the in the Academy Award goes to type performances, but kind of like what you're saying, Barrett, they're all into this movie. Their their characters are in the Star Wars universe. They're not wooden performances. They're not dull, phoning it in type line readings. I mean, these these people are in their characters. Totally dig that. That said, though, I like the performance I'm getting from Boyega as Finn. I was actually a little disappointed with his role. You know, I felt like he was a well, I I, I guess I wasn't sure what his motivation was or I, I should say I, I'm certain that I know what the motivation is. I just don't think it was enough. He just wanted to get away. It's like, oh, wow. You know what? I this is my first mission. The guy's dead. And I just want to get away from the first door because they're so scary. I, I wish he and this isn't anything about Boyega. This is how the character's written. I wish that he had realized, maybe somehow found out that, hey, there's a resistance fighter here. Maybe I can help him and join the resistance because I've I've seen what the First Order is. Sorry, I may have said Empire earlier, but I've seen what the First Order is all about, and I want to do something about it. I wish he was more overt about, hey, Poe, if I help you escape, can you can you take me to the resistance? I want to I help because this is garbage. I, I wish there was more of that. He kind of eventually gets there, but... I think it's because the situations around him kind of forced it to happen. I'm going to disagree because I think that it is believable that he sees in this first battle to some degree that he he doesn't matter, that he's not important, that you know he, he sees this other person die and he's the only one who stops to help. Nobody else nobody else bothers. It's they're disposable. And you know maybe there was a lot of different reasons why he had difficulty with it. I mean, he looks like he's hyperventilating as Baron said. And then <laughs> he, you know, he does escape with Poe and he just wants to get the heck out of there because remember he, he's been on the star killer base, which we'll get to later. And he knows what it can do. And he doesn't want to be part of something like that. He just wants to get away. He wants to live his life. He doesn't want to have to worry about it, but his character arc or the fact that, Suddenly, it's okay for people to matter. I mean, when you see his interaction with Ray later, 
he's trying to protect her. He's grabbing her hand. And this makes for some really funny moments where she's like, will you let go of my hand? He gets knocked out and she goes over to him and he sits up. And the first thing he asks is, are you okay? And later when they're talking, he says to her that, you know, you looked at me a certain way and I'd never seen that before. I mean, there's a character arc there. He goes from thinking about himself to thinking about one other person, which is why he goes back to the base. It's not to do it for the resistance. It's to do it because he wants to save Ray. And then he, you know, he finally believes in the resistance, or at least to some degree, he certainly believes in Ray. And he fights where he came from, which I think is a really powerful character arc. I have to agree with you, Jonathan, that Finn's character arc and Finn's motivation is the only pure motivation in the whole movie. Uh, and the only one that you can really understand when it comes to Han and Leia and the rest of them, they're all over the place when it comes to what they want. So I kind of have to agree with you. Finn has the purest motivation and the, the cleanest story arc out of all these characters. And it gets to be funny. I mean, he's the character that I think is the one that draws us in the most initially. I mean, Ray doesn't really have that level of humor at first because she sort of has to come out of her shell. He is just straight there from the beginning. He is the one propelling the movie along. And at different points, he's the one that propels the mission along as well. Uh, I like the fact that they took... When it came to the casting, they took sort of that almost colorblind approach and genderblind approach to some extent where they just – they found the right people for the roles as opposed to looking for people that fit a certain type. I do have the one concern about Boyega just in the sense – it's funny because he does not seem to be a very – he doesn't carry that American slang kind of thing when he's talking himself and you hear him talking about his family and his excitement for being in the role and everything. But in the film, of all the different characters that they put in – Boyega is the only one that seems to be using American-style slang at times. It kicked me out a little bit and frustrated me in a saga that in the past has been noted for the fact that it's had like one black character per trilogy. Now here's Boyega in there, and he gets the hell nah kind of line and so forth. I don't know. I, they took such great strides at diversity in this cast, and then every great once in a while... It's like they it's like they were nudging Boyega, hey, hey, can you be a little more black? And that's it's like it went against the casting decisions that they made to be so colorblind in it. Boyega puts in an amazing performance. But I'm wondering whose call it was to kind of nudge him towards slang from time to time. And if that was the motivation behind it. Well, you know, ha have you not seen these other movies with these other black leads? You have to talk like this. And it it, it bothered me the few times that he did that. I don't know why it would bother you so much. It's slang. If it was Han using slang, I think they use slang all the time in the. But it's not. Their... But it's not slang that in American society tends to be predominantly on film attributed to one particular race, and then you have a character of that particular race given those lines. There's just something. I don't know, just just rub me a little bit the wrong way. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive living in the Atlanta area and dealing with all the things that my students have had to go through in the past uh, in terms of the way that people look at them and the assumptions they make about them. I didn't want to see filmmakers making those kinds of assumptions about Boyega's character. I'm not sure that one Hail Nah is equal to Eubonics in Star Wars, though, Nathan. I think that he was just Did trying I to Did I say that? Funny. Well, I just think that I think what... What you're saying is kind of, why did he have to act black? Because he's black. And 
I, I'm not sure. When you go back and you look at Lando, he was he had a lot of soul. You know, he might have been grabbing his junk and, but isn't and, that, and rolling but on a hoverboard. But isn't that the point, though? That's the 80s coming out of the black exploitation 70s era. This is 2015. Okay, I'm going to kind of come down the middle of you two and break you up a little bit. But I didn't take that, Nathan, as a cultural thing. I took that as just... Just just American slang. However, I did feel that it was a little out of place in the Star Wars universe. It was jarring because we've never heard anyone use that type of – just any type of slang before. It was always very proper English and language. And I'm using the, the original trilogy. I'm, I'm not going into the prequel trilogy because that has its own issues. But – I found it a little off-putting just because it it didn't fit with my perceptions of Star Wars. But you know what? That's okay. Challenge my perceptions. And you notice it's not in the novel, so it's probably not in the script that way. It was probably a decision made on the set. I don't know. I just One of those things that kind of threw me out for just a moment, but I digress. That's something I'm sure Beyond the Films can get into more when we have more time. So we get Finn. Let's talk about Poe. He is the resistance fighter, and I'm not sure I almost see him if you have to compare the new, I guess, the new trio to the original trilogy trio. He's kind of our Han Solo person, you know, cocky pilot, very, very sure of himself. I don't know. I I, I thought he was kind of a good balance. He's not in this as much as I guess I would have thought he would be and he disappears for a real big part of this film and i mean a lot of people i didn't because obviously we see how many toys he's got but i you know a lot of people assumed he was dead but what did you think of his character and and his portrayal of the you know the the resistance fighter he was not the han solo of this movie okay han solo was the han solo of this movie (laughs) i don't know what he was trying to be but Poe Dameron was kind of worthless. He really, I mean, they had a scene where he was blowing up some TIE fighters and stuff, but he kind of was a non-issue here, a non-factor. Because he's good looking, I'm supposed to like him. I mean, he's a good pilot, I'm supposed to like him. There's no reason why I should like this guy. Well, I had high hopes for him when he's in the face of Kylo Ren and he's just kind of being a smart aleck and it's just, hey, I don't understand can't understand you with all this mechanical i mean he was he was kind of just playing the game with kylo ren pretty well and of course he gets taken and tortured and everything so i don't know i i guess i walked away thinking that he was a wedge and tilly's type of guy with a little dash of han solo because i mean we never really got any character or personality out of wedge but he's sort of the you know, unlike Han Solo, he's very much the military guy. He's the commander. He's the one calling the shots at the briefing, not Leia. He's the one saying, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. We got this. We got this. We got information here. We need to go here and do this. I mean, he, he's pulling it all together. So I like that. I, I dig that he's the the resistance guy. I never quite got that he's Han Solo. I think maybe people are saying that because he's the, the 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 dashing pilot or whatever. And he, he, he kind of talks to Kylo Ren, kind of like how Han Solo may have mouthed off to Vader. But the one thing I really wasn't prepared for was for him to be out of half the movie and inexplicably return. Now, we get a dropped line. 
oh yeah, hey, I got thrown out of here and whatever. And I, I'm not saying I needed to see everything that he went through, but I just wish it made more sense of what happened. I think they could have written it maybe a little bit more smartly to where maybe the three of them actually stuck together and and you saw some dynamic with them. And I'm, I'm sure you could argue that, yeah, but Poe Dameron Hansel in the same scenes is kind of worthless and fine. But personally, it would have made more sense to me if Poe had been the one flying the Falcon like Han Solo would, not Ray, who even admitted that, no, I've never flown this. It hasn't flown for years, but I'm going to fly it like it's a brand new Corvette. They could have had Poe not return and it would have made any difference. They could have had Ray fly the X-Wing to blow up the Death Star, whatever they want to call that. He he made no difference. There was no reason. If he would have died, it would have made no difference to me. Why should I care about this character? They gave me no reason to care about him because he's good looking. But hey, if he hadn't have been separated, they wouldn't have had that great reunion shot between uh, Finn and Poe back at the resistance base where I, for a moment, I thought they were going to make out. What a lovely shot that was. It, it wasn't earned. They act like they were, you know, brothers who have fought together for forever. And it was like, OK, you cracked me out of a base in a TIE fighter. Now we're like embracing like, dude, you're the man. <laughs> Granted, if if Finn hadn't done what he'd done, Poe would still been rotten in that chair and maybe dead by now. But whatever. I've, I've never been in battle like that. So maybe you build those bonds quickly because of rescues. So the one thing that he does do is he gives this map to bb8 he gets it from what's the character that he gets it from i could not pronounce his name lore san Teka. now this guy has to be ray's obi-wan right that's why he's there that's why he knows where luke is at. no no um i we're told that he's an old ally but i i, I was trying to figure out am i supposed to know who this is is this just somebody they pulled out of a hat i would have liked it if maybe there was something, you know, this would have been a time to tie something to the original trilogy because I had no idea who this guy was or why we're supposed to care about him or why he would know where Luke might be. Or tie him into Rebels or something. I mean, we were told that Rebels was going to have these little hints and seeds that will lead us into The Force Awakens and you'd realize it when the film came out. Well, the film's out and there doesn't seem to be anything coming from Rebels that had anything to do with The Force Awakens. Uh, Lorsan Tekka, for what it's worth, not an Obi-Wan type figure. He was just somebody who was an ally in the early days of the Republic, the New Republic. Um, he had seen the Clone Wars. He's now ready to retire. He's a religious guy from the Church of the Force and decides to, that he's going to go to one of these sacred villages uh, on Jakku. He just happens to have the information that helps point to this old Jedi temple, which is how they're going to find Luke. There's, it, they never make it clear that the map that they've got, it's not to Luke because Luke could be anywhere. It's data that is pointing to that first Jedi temple. And since Luke is supposed to be going to the first Jedi temple, that's how they know that that is where the map is going to lead. It's, it's going to lead them to him because he happens to be there. It's like saying, you know, I need to find Bob. Well, where's Bob? He's at the Chipotle down the street. Let me give you a map to Chipotle. You'll find Bob. Um, oh, I love I the... Never. I never got that. I thought that this was like a trail of breadcrumbs or something that Luke left. I didn't realize that. I mean, I know they talk about later. Han says that, you know, every the rumor was is that Luke was going to the first Jedi temple. 
but I had no idea that that was the connect. Okay, well, it, that makes more sense. They break it down later. J.J. Abrams has has explained where it even came from. And I, I did want to address the Poe thing for a second, but where he says it came from basically is when when R two D two is in this low power mode, he's basically defragmenting decades worth of data. And some of that data is data he accessed, R2-D2, accessed while on the Death Star in A New Hope. And that's where he got the information on where that old Jedi temple would be. Though why there'd be a piece missing, they never really explain. Uh, speaking of pieces missing, love the Poe character. The, the whole, who talks first, do you talk or do I talk, cracked me up on the inside. Um, had me smiling very wide. But I do think, I, I think they did try to explain where he had been for part of the movie, I imagine that it's probably a deleted scene. Because the novelization does have a scene where he is found by a scavenger and taken back, I guess, to Nima Outpost to eventually make his way off-world. And it strikes me that that's the way a lot of the additional scenes feel in the novelization. There's not many, and the ones that do show up almost feel integral enough that surely there were things that were in the script that were either filmed and cut for time or never filmed and just cut you know, early on in the production process, but it did seem very weird that he would come back so late. One of those various holes, like in the map. But he's supposed to be the guy that's the suave gentleman of the film. We didn't hear your thoughts about Poe. What do you think about Poe? Um, I think Poe might have been a casualty of having Harrison Ford in the movie, because if I recall, he was not slated to be in this movie initially. And I think the the newer, the younger group had been cast before they even knew if they were going to get Harrison Ford or have Han in the movie as, as they would have him now. So I have a feeling, and this is just my suspicion, and I, I have nothing to corroborate this, but I have a feeling that maybe Poe had more. And then he got kind of shoved to the back to give um, Han more of the spotlight. But I'm, I'm curious to see if that's that's true, because it seemed like he was going to have a much bigger part way, way back when people were first kind of talking about the casting and Harrison Ford had not been mentioned yet. Um, as far as his character, he was he was OK. Like, I thought that line at the beginning or do you talk, do I talk was kind of funny, uh, suave or anything. I'm not terribly excited for him. Like, he's just kind of there and. He's got some good one-liners, and I wish he had more screen time because I think he could be fun, but he was kind of unmemorable. you got to wonder if, if Oscar Isaac is sitting back every time Harrison Ford had an accident going, this is my shot. I wonder if Poe was hanging out with Constable Zuvio on set because they're both not in the movie very much at all, right? Okay, you I've, know, heard, I've heard the, uh, the theory about Constable Zuvio, and I'll tell you, after the second time, there was a lot of things going around, and I, when I watched it the third time, I saw him. There is – he is in a – I swear to God, in a blink and a miss it, and the only reason I recognize him is because of his hat. He's on Jakku as Ray is moving through some of the te junker tents. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. So let's move <laughs> on to Ray, okay? And, and this whole Jakku – village or whatever is going on Jakku here okay this is where I start getting confused we get introduced to Ray now let me say first of all I love Ray I think that this is the best thing to happen to Star Wars she is likable immediately I love her immediately I mean she's gorgeous she's acting her she's giving the performance of her life 
I went and watched the other movie that she was in that she did, which was kind of a, a low budget indie kind of movie. She did real well in this, but nothing like the performance she's giving now. I immediately like Ray. I don't know what's going on in her personal life. I don't know what's going on with Jakku. I don't know if she's a scavenger. I don't know if she's working for somebody because they kind of have a scene where she's scrubbing the metal and somebody's kind of yelling at her and she scrubs real fast. So I know there's a lot of stuff that's being cut out. But when we first get introduced to Ray, I'm very confused. Well, okay, this is my impression on Ray. I mean, we learn later in the movie that she was abandoned by her family, that they left her on Jakku or sold her in the something. You know, she was separated from her family. She's waiting for them to come back. We don't know why she believes that. I mean, hope springs eternal, and that's kind of broken later in the movie. But that moment that you're talking about where she kind of stops as she's cleaning metal, they're going around, and I guess there's Ray and there's a lot of other people who go and the battle that took place there left a lot of salvage on the planet. And so they go and they try to find things and bring them back to trade for food. Again, you know, half a portion, a quarter portion, whatever. And I, that moment that you're talking about with the brushing, she's sitting there brushing and she looks up and she sees this old woman doing the same thing as her. And you get that impression that this is her life. This is what the future holds for her. Now, about the character of Ray, she's easily my favorite character in this movie. And I find her endearing the way that Daisy Ridley plays her. It's very, very engaging. She's our POV character, I think, or at least I found her that way. And she's why I really like this movie because she makes me feel it. I felt that Ray was, I mean, she's a really good character. There's a lot of unanswered questions about her that I'm assuming is all set up for what we're going to get in episodes eight and possibly nine since she'll be coming back. So there's sort of that question of, you know, did they give us too little or is it all just seeds for later? Even the background material we get on her, the little bit about, you know, why is she able to fly things and where does her technical expertise come from? The stuff that we get in uh, Ray's survival guide and before the awakening really isn't all that much. Uh, I think the performance is very reminiscent to me of uh, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker in A New Hope. Again, she's sort of the Luke analog here in that she's always kind of wide-eyed and kind of wow about the things that are going on, um, but she can still handle herself. What I found most impressive about the character, and this is something that's been commented on on plenty of websites by this point, is she's just a character in her own right. They didn't pull what they pull with so many other Star Wars female characters in trying to over-sexualize them or make it like, see, it's a woman. She's just there. This could be a role that could have been played by a man, could have been played by a woman. Didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because it's just a strong character that never gets pushed in that direction. I mean, we talked in, on this show and on Republic Forces Radio Network about how they, you know, they, they throw Ahsoka at age 14 into inappropriate clothing. They have her at 16 with a freaking boob window. They got what they did with Padme. They got the Slave Leia stuff that they're now discontinuing through Disney. They didn't do anything like that with Rey, and thank God they didn't. For once, a woman got to be a strong character on screen without them ever going that direction, which partly makes me wonder if that was a Lucas thing, because this is the first Star Wars film without Lucas having any direct involvement. You know, one thing I'll say about Ray is my second viewing of the movie was with a, a friend who brought his his two daughters, and one of them is like 10 years old. And I asked her, I was like, hey, what'd you think of the movie? And her response was, 
I'm I'm going to be Ray for Halloween. So I think she did that. The character did a great job of being, you know, really someone that young girls can look up to as being heroic and capable and intelligent and really being the one that saves the day for so many people in the movie. And I enjoyed it. And I think Daisy Ridley did a, a fantastic job with the performance. And, you know, I know Natalie Portman went on to win an Academy Award, but she should have been half this good in the prequels. The thing that I was really worried about later in the movie is when Ray is captured and you see Finn, you know, wanting to save her. And I'm like, oh, great. Really? You took this strong female character who's very, very independent and made her a damsel in distress. And they they did a great <laughs> thing with it because she totally saves herself. And I loved it. I loved it. You know, I never got that because... I never saw Han as a damsel in distress when he got frozen in carbonite. So I, I never saw that when Ray got taken. And that's credit to this movie that I did believe that she was a strong female lead. I didn't believe that she needed to be rescued. And in fact, in that scene, I think I kind of told myself, oh, don't worry, Finn. She'll, she can take care of herself. I think I probably told myself that in my head when that happened. I cannot tell you what a relief Ray is as a character. Um, just me as a, I tend to be drawn towards things like Star Wars and Star Trek and things that are are very heavily male dominated fan groups and things like that. And it is a thing where every single movie and every single TV show or anything like that, the woman is usually shoehorned into something. Like there was a moment where Ray and Finn are kind of staring at each other on the Falcon, and I was like, oh no we're going to have to have the obligatory romance now because she's there and, and that's what women are for in these movies. And they didn't go there. And it was just like, thank you. <laughs> just like, God, thank you. Finally, one character that isn't for, you know, that purpose. And, and she doesn't need to be rescued. And she is very like physical in, in her performance. She's running around. She's climbing things in. And it's very believable. Like I can really buy that she can, you know, free climb. I'm up and down these chasms in the in the Star Killer, and and I loved her. I was really happy with her. Her performance was great, and and actually, to add to that, Jerry, you were saying that she's a really good role model for young girls. She's also making it kind of a safe place for Star Wars for for more women because a lot of girls, and I've had this happen to me too, where you you kind of say you're a Star Wars fan, and guys will start trivia like like nailing you a trivia to like prove that you're a fan that kind of thing so it's actually really nice to have a female lead because it's like we're here too <laughs> and having done some rock climbing in my days i really really thought what she was doing in the uh on the ship climb free climbing the outside of that the chasm i thought that was really cool <laughs> and you notice they cut out most of that i mean we only saw a little snippet of her doing that in some of the previews you got, we got a whole lot more for going through that death star or that, uh, cruiser. She was on a cruiser. Though. Yeah. The Imperial cruiser. Well, and you know, kudos to the filmmaking because you got her scavenging at the beginning of the movie, going through the crashed Imperial star destroyer and jumping around on ropes and swinging down and, and doing things to where, Later on in the movie, I totally believe she, she'd be able to do that because it made sense that she'd be able to do that because of everything she'd done as a scavenger. However, and let me progress it a little bit here. Even I was taken back, though. I, I love the whole bit of 
Kylo Ren trying to get information out of her because she saw the map and then kind of opening this two-way street of force mind reading or whatever to where then, unlike Poe, Ray was able to read back into him. And then I think at that point, that's when she's realizing like, oh, wow, what am I able to do here? I can I can see his thoughts, too, and I reveal them and freaked out Kylo Ren, which is really cool. But the mind trick on the stormtrooper, which I guess was Daniel Craig, apparently, that even to me was like, now, wait a minute. Should should she really be able to do that as her second performance in the force? No, she should not. And let me start by saying this is where the major issues uh, of the movie start rearing its ugly head from what we and here's where the rules come in. imaginary rules, whatever. But what we know of the Force, and I feel with Disney, the Force is going to be something completely different than what we think the Force is. It's going to be completely different with Disney. When a Padawan gets trained in the ways of the Force, it's because their master trains them how they were trained. And so different Padawans and different masters have different techniques in the Force. Not everybody knows how to do a Jedi mind trick. Not every Jedi knows how to use the Force underwater. So for her to be able to use the Force like this without any training at all, the Force is going to have to be something entirely different. It's not something that you have to be trained in. It's something that when you realize that you have a connection to it somehow, all of a sudden you're completely free and you can do anything that your mind sets to. If you think about Reading somebody's mind, you can do it. If you think about stopping a blaster bolt, you can do it. doesn't require any training. It just requires concentration. And I think that's where what the Force is to Disney. Okay, and my wife and I talked about this. Now, my wife has been a Star Wars fan since before she knew me. And she she picks up on little things. So I'm not going to take credit for this. But we were talking about this after we saw the film. And, you know, Ray's jump. And the one thing that we kind of came up with as a possibility is Ray, you know, when she's at Maz's cantina, she goes into the basement and she finds Luke's old saber, which is a whole nother discussion that we need to get to. But she touches that. And in some ways, it's like the force is open to her or, as my wife said, maybe reopened for her. And she's touching the force and, and getting these visions. And then later when... Kylo Ren, they have almost like a test of wills in the Force, and it opens her up further. Is she reconnecting with some previous training? What, I mean, what what happened that she ended up on Jakku? Let me let me answer. Let me respond, and then I'm going to let everybody else talk to you. But that's a good statement. That's a good question. But my thing is, if you learn the piano in kindergarten. It doesn't mean that you can play Mozart at 19 when you see another piano again. These Jedi mind tricks, these things that she was doing by not allowing Kylo Ren to retrieve the lightsaber, these techniques are done by Jedi masters who have mastered these techniques. A Jedi mind trick doesn't even work all the time, only on the weak-minded. So a Jedi master can try to do a Jedi mind trick on someone and it would not work on a, on a strong-minded individual. She's able to do it by just concentrating hard enough. So even if she did have training as a young child before she got dropped off at Jakku, it would still take a lifetime to master these techniques. 
this is where I, it's getting a little shaky for me. Editor's note. At this point, the conversation abruptly stopped. Jerry started to say something in response to Barrett, and then everything just went haywire. Skype crashed, or at least we thought it did. Turns out it was Jonathan's router, which had basically committed suicide. It had killed itself in such a way that it required the internet service provider to actually come out and fix it or replace it rather than being able to just hop back online once it reconnected. That meant that our discussion that was meant to happen in one night would happen in two nights. We end now the segment from December 20th and move to the segment from December 28th. We tried to be all clever about it and not mention other viewings of The Force Awakens in that intervening week to make it sound like it was all recorded on the same night, only to later realize that while we picked up where we left off on Rey, we wound up talking about Finn and Poe again on that second night with some different insights than when we first talked about it the first night. Rather than completely cutting out one of those versions of the discussion on Finn and Poe because of the different perspectives offered, I decided to keep them both here. So yes, there's a little bit of deja vu in the near future, but I think you'll appreciate that both were kept in. We move on with part two, picking up with Jerry commenting on Barrent from December 28th. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Barrent, because the thing is, I was thrown off by that too, but then it did occur to me that, yeah, hey, you know what? These stormtroopers are brainwashed. They're probably the weakest minds you could potentially go against. And, you know, I think the interesting thing was that, and I actually noticed this more in the first viewing than the second viewing, truth be known, was that it seemed like when Kylo Ren was trying to extract the information from Rey, he opened up like a two-way door that she then was able to see into him and probably did give her a lot of insight really quickly. There's actually a moment in the novelization where it talks about basically how when she is sort of resisting instinctively to what Kylo Ren is doing, it's making her realize sort of what the potential is for what she could do. And then once he leaves and the stormtrooper is there, she's kind of thinking through the process. Okay, you know, if he could do that to me because he's trained, but I could do it back to him without the training on an instinctive level. And he's so powerful that he should have been able to resist. What could I do if I use that same thought process on someone who's not trained to resist it. And she kind of goes through a logical process for it. I think the thing that to me, uh, I'm hearing probably more often, or I guess it, at least equally with the whole idea of the mind trick is the whole thing about the saber duel. Like why is it that she's able to hold her own against Kylo Ren? And I think that's a little bit easier to explain. One, he's injured, you know, he's doing the whole smacking his side to feed on the pain, you know, to continue the fight. But also, if you actually watch the way that she's fighting in that, until she does the whole close her eyes, open herself to the force thing, she's being driven back the entire time. I mean, she's doing kind of this weird stabby type attack instead of actually swinging the blade. And the entire time she's being pushed back and back and back and back and back until he's finally got her right there at that precipice. And then she's able to turn the tide once she opens herself to the force the way that Maz said. So it's a fast progression, but I would argue that... You know, I mean, J.J. doesn't tend to show a lot within the films, but it's not nearly as fast of a, as a progression as, say, you know, I devote myself to your teachings, boom, all of a sudden Anakin has no good left in him at all, that sort of thing. It's, it's just we don't see a lot on screen. When we're speaking about the saber fight, I've been thinking a lot about that, 
And one thing that I guess I kind of explained it to myself or found some sort of reasoning for it is the fact that Ray has been using a melee weapon for a while. She is has that staff. And there's no reason to say that some of her skill there can't transplant or at least her ability there can't help her with the saber technique. I mean, it's not perfect. We see that. Nathan, as you said, she kind of stabs and backs off, stabs and backs off. But she's not a novice to this type of fighting. Just to put it in perspective also, I feel like people are giving Ray a really hard time. And if you think back to A New Hope, Luke is literally a farm boy. He does nothing. He knows nothing about combat, nothing. He has no skills in that area, unlike Ray, who does use a staff. And with Obi-Wan, he's using that training remote, and he's blocking shots with a blindfold on with literally one sentence of guidance, which is just stretch out with your feelings. And and nobody questions that. But like Ray is doing something that, to my mind, is very similar. And everyone seems to be really upset about it. And I'm not sure really why that is. Well, I, the only thing, and, and this will be my last comment, is that it's the lack of training. That even though Anakin and Luke both were natural in their abilities with the Force, they weren't able to do some of these things without a little bit of training. Even, even Anakin in Episode 2 can't defeat Dooku. And he's had a lot of training from Obi-Wan. And he, they're calling him the Chosen One, and he's very powerful, but he still cannot beat Dooku with a lot of training. And Kylo Ren is no Dooku. But this was the kind of the first time where I kind of felt what some of the EU fans felt over the years, where they always kind of said how people kind of trampled on it a little bit. And maybe trampled is not the word to use, but... This is the way that this generation's hero is going to go. It, it, it takes the natural ability of Anakin and, and Luke and takes it to the next level of where it's so natural that no training involved, that as long as she concentrates hard enough, because it's, it's, she has such a connection to the Force, she can do whatever she wants. And that is a hard pill to swallow. It definitely was the first time around when I saw it. Well, I don't want to belabor Ray too much. I know we all want to move on to the other characters, but there's so much we don't know about her. And I find myself wondering, are we sure that she's never had any formal training? We don't know what her life was before she was dropped off in Jakku. If I can just sort of put a bug in your ear as we sort of move between topics here, we really want to be concerned about that final duel and what's happening. Note that both Finn and Ray, they're the ones charging into attack. They're the ones who are diving in with that anger on their faces. But we don't hear anything about, you know, using the dark side and how anger leads to it very much like we would have seen if this was the original trilogy. If when Luke dives in with never, it's a bad thing because he's given himself to the dark side. He's acting in anger. Both Ray and Finn do it here and not really a peep, it seems, from folks watching the film. Well, you know, come on, let's be honest. The First Order really has been on the defensive this whole movie. I mean, the stormtroopers just land in the ships. They walk off and they get fired on. Kylo Ren just is taking a stroll through the forest and gets attacked by Finn and Rey. I mean, really, they, they, they are the picked on ones here. Not sure I'd go that far. Speaking of Finn. Yes, let's talk about Finn, our ex-stormtrooper. FN, what is it? 2187. 2187. 
How could you forget that? <laughs> 2187. Yeah, it was a nice homage, but <laughs> what do you think of this character? I mean, we, we touched on a little bit earlier that he seems to make a real rapid shift, or I think we touched on it earlier, between Stormtrooper and, you know, fighting against them. Finn was an interesting character. We did touch on Finn just a little bit briefly in the beginning of the show on his seemingly inconsistency. And, but still, he was basically the most consistent character of the film. He, his motivation was quite clear. Get away from the First Order. He doesn't like what he was doing. Even though he received this training from birth, which was a really cool thing to add there, that you know they're taking these stormtroopers, not even giving them names, and training them from birth to be these killing machines. And he has a change of heart. You know, Boyega lights up the screen. I, he's no Hayden Christensen. He's just as good an actor and has just as much charisma, I think, as Ray's character has on screen. Every time he's on screen, he's eating it up. He's very funny. You go along with him. Uh, you want him to win. And he is this next generation's hero. And I can see it, you know. One of the things that my son said was, it's okay if all of the older characters die because grandparents die all the time. We have Ray and Finn, you know, and I think that with these two characters that Disney is doing exactly what they're they're leading out to do, which is get a whole nother generation hooked on to these characters and take it into the future. Shoot, I'll take it a step beyond what Baron said about how he's sort of an equal there in performance to Ray. I actually found that he sort of stole every scene he was in on my first viewing. I mean, this guy, Boyega, as a just kind of as a, a personality, seeing him on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, I mean, he just has this joy for what he's doing, and it really comes through in the character performance, that he's just sort of excited and happy to be there, and every step of the way, he's sort of throwing himself completely into it. Uh, he's... A little bit hyperventilating early on in the film, but I think at least on my first viewing, Finn was the one who screamed out to me, you know, this is the next generation right here. He's the funniest character by far within the film, and he's also, he's, he's our lens. He's a little bit leaning towards the modern slang sometimes and the way a modern, you know, American might act, but... I mean, he's a character that as he learns and grows, he's kind of like he's starting almost as a blank slate. And as the film goes on, he's changing. We're sort of following with him and we're seeing everything through his eyes. It sort of gets rid of that whole old idea that the droids are who we're supposed to be seeing all the films through, that now this is our perspective character. You know, I really like John Boyega in this. I think really they, they all gave great performances. I mean... Natalie Portman and uh, Hayden Christensen, I mean, they only wished that they could have been as exciting and energetic and so kinetic in a Star Wars movie like uh, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega were. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I think there are times where I didn't quite get what Finn was doing in terms of like, OK, what is his motivation? What is he really trying to do and it's really just a simple I just need a pilot to get me away from here. I want to go as far as the east is from the west from from first order and that and that's it. I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more hey, I want to do something against the first order like he gets later. I, I I wish that was sort of like wow, this this guy's with the resistance and man, I'm going to I'm going to help him and maybe he can take me there and I can I wish there was a little bit more of that. Not John Boyega's fault. I think John Boyega did a phenomenal job in his performance, 
I just wish they'd done a little bit more of this character there. I'd agree with that, that from a, you know, sort of a, a mental psychological standpoint, it does seem to be really a rapid shift. And I mean, I know I've read some of the novelization and other material where it's apparent that this is his first mission in the beginning of the film and his first real experience with live combat. And it wasn't at all what he was expecting. And for whatever reason, he can't, he just can't cope with it the same way and has to escape. That, I believe, I think that we're supposed to think that his motivation for eventually joining the resistance and really fighting the First Order is Ray. But I don't know. I, I didn't, I agree with you, Jerry. There needed to be something maybe a little bit more there. See, I liked the way they did Finn. I feel like I, I have students who are very much like Finn, and I've known a couple of friends who are like him, where like the people that they are around are kind of the center of their world, and they have a couple of individuals who are like their their dearest and closest friends, and those are the people who are those are the things in their lives that are the most important. And if something happens to them, or if something goes wrong, or if they need something, they will drop everything and and help them like that the, it's a people kind of oriented way of being and so i had no problem with finn behaving this way i was just like oh he's a people person in that sense and and he he played that kind of person very well so like it to me the idea that maybe he lost his one kind of person within the stormtrooper barracks instantaneously in his first fight in his first like foray out of training battles it makes perfect sense to me that he would just have a complete meltdown and then rethink everything um, and then immediately latch on to somebody else, in this case, Ray. And, you know, what else the character of Finn did for me was a lot of things were brought up about the race. You know, let's let's just bring it out right now of that Star Wars was going to be too black or whatever. What this character did was it, you don't you forget all about that when it comes to to Finn. And I think that's going to help Star Wars go forward in the future, especially with Rogue One, because Rogue One has some Asian leads and women leads and all kinds of stuff. So it's not going to be the traditional white man lead here. And I think the character of Finn kind of maybe erased that because I didn't see him as 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 a minority character anymore. I just saw him as a character in the Star Wars universe. And I I think that really tips that really goes to John Boyega and his performance in the film. We talk about how he, how the character sort of changes his perspective. Uh, there's a great moment in there where they're at Maz's castle and he's finally telling Ray about how, you know, he's not the resistance. He's a stormtrooper, but he says, you know, she looked at him in a way that nobody ever had. And I think the immediate response that sometimes we have to a line like that is, oh, he's got a crush on her now or something like that. But I mean, how many times have we seen someone who's a loved one who's been in a really dark place or really down moment and we've really just sort of wished that someday they could somehow see themselves through our eyes the way that we see them and how they would see something so much greater in themselves than they actually think of themselves. And Finn gets a moment where he actually sort of gets to see that reflected in Ray. And that's a, that's a substantial changing moment for someone. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, I now have this person to fight for. It's she's seeing in me that I can be so much more than I ever thought that I could be, that I was ever bred 
to be. I think that's an easily overlooked part of that conversation, but it helps explain Finn's dramatic character arc by the time we get to the end of the film where he is fully with the resistance and willing to sacrifice himself. Well, actually, by the end of the uh, movie, he's in a coma. But he's willing to sacrifice himself when it comes to protecting Ray, etc., going on the mission. Then he's in the coma. Yeah, he's got to be the luckiest character in the film. He survives two times from dying from the octopus monster and a lightsaber to the back. So Finn's already OG after one movie. So let's talk about another new character introduced, another resistance fighter. We have Poe. And I think there's been a lot of comparisons between Poe and the original trilogy, Han Solo, because he's the non-force sensitive and he's the great pilot and he's got this sort of cocky attitude. I really enjoyed Poe. I, I, I enjoyed watching that character, even though he wasn't in the movie as much as I maybe would have liked. You know, from the original trailer, teaser trailer a little over a year ago, because of we, we saw him in that X-Wing and doing the woo, you know, flying over the uh, the water. I never got that he was going to be the Han Solo. I think he, we kind of de facto that because it's like, oh, there's a trio here and there was a trio then makes sense. I guess I sort of and maybe I was just hoping more than than actually thinking this, but I I all along was just hoping that he was going to be a more involved character, you know, more involved in the plot version of a wedge or maybe like what Biggs would have been if he had stuck around a little bit more hot shotty, a little bit more calm, the shots, not just nice shot, Jansen, you know, sort of character, but like involved and in really seeing what a rebel leader would be like. That's not Luke. At first, I actually thought this was going to wind up being my favorite character. That first few minutes where we get him, I mean, BB-8's a droid, and we've seen different reactions to droids in the past, but he really treats BB-8 almost like it's you know, his child, his pet, whatever, you know, it's, you know, you know go, I'll come back for you, it'll be alright, and then he immediately is pulling out the rifle, checking it, flipping it over his shoulder to take, a, to take aim at the First Order as they're coming in, you know, that whole sequence there, I think told us a lot about who he was, and then we get a little bit with him, we get some cool moments with Finn, and then he just sort of disappears, only to come back later. And he's a very enthusiastic character, I guess. He's he's certainly as excited to see Finn back again. It just would have been nice to get more with him in the middle, like like the way the novelization gives a little scene to try to explain how he comes back. We learn more about him in Before the Awakening, that book that takes place sort of leading up into the film. And that, I think, gave me more appreciation for sort of what he's been through and how he got into the Resistance but for the film itself, as much as they promoted the character and as cool as he was, it seems like most of his biggest role, his biggest moments are all at the beginning of the film. I almost felt like in the end, anytime they would cut back to the battle for Starkiller Base and him zipping around piloting, I don't know if it's the way that it was shot or what, but for some reason I kept being like, okay, let's cut back to the other stuff going on. Let's cut back to the other stuff going on. I wasn't as engaged in Poe's participation in that final battle as I thought I would be after being so excited and enthralled by the character in the first chunk of the film. Yeah, I think Poe was kind of a victim of the almost too similar to A New Hope plot. Like we, we've seen a Death Star blow up twice. And <laughs> so there's no threat there. It's just a bigger Death Star. So seeing the X-Wings doing some variant or, or alternative to a trench run, 
isn't very interesting. It's not new at all. And, and the other things that we're cutting back and forth to are new and different. So, so I kind of feel badly because Poe, I think could be a really engaging, really interesting character in that second half of the movie. And he just kind of falls victim to, we've been there and done that. Um, but in the beginning of the movie, he's really fun. And I think people struggle, I think, because they want to kind of figure out who's the Han and who's the Leia and that kind of mentality. And, and they're just very different. And I appreciate that, that, that Poe is not just another Han Solo. He's a very different character um, and he's very funny. So I enjoyed him. I'm hoping that he will get kind of a little bit more screen time in subsequent movies so that he can be kind of fleshed out to the same degree that Ray and Finn are, because I feel like as a trio, they could be a really fun team. Jen, I couldn't agree with you more. I really enjoyed some of what, well, what the actor brought to Poe, what Oscar Isaacs brought to him, the humor, even just right from the get go when he's, you know, confronted with Kylo Ren. He's like, who talks first? Do you talk first? Do I talk first? I, <laughs> I was, I, I was engaged that the character had me. Oh, the fact, and that was actually what I was going to say, uh, Jonathan, that the fact that he would do that back and forth, smart alecky type response, which admittedly is Han Solo-ish, but you know, Han Solo didn't even do that in the face of Darth Vader on Bespin, right? So the fact that he would do that to Kylo Ren, and I don't know if he really gets who Kylo Ren is, you know, because I thought it was kind of interesting when they when they took him onto the cruiser of the First Order, he looked around like, holy crap, this this is what it looks like inside. Or, you know, he was in like in awe by it, just like he was when he got in the Typhoon. I was like, oh, I always wanted to drive one of these. So, you know, I, I don't know how experienced he is in terms of knowing the ins and outs of the First Order. But once he got in the face of Kylo Ren, he's just smarting off to him. I think that, you know, makes makes for an interesting character. And I thought it was kind of weird that he disappeared for a third of it. And then we just get him like right back in the action with this weak drop lines like oh well i crashed here and made my way off world like, okay i'm not i'm not saying i had to see that because it would may have just been a maybe an unnecessary interjection a la attack of the clones revenge of the sith but really weird it's almost like they like there's a there was a cut scene of him doing something or or they just you know in, in a lucas way forgot to tie it up and then just oh we'll just drop a line later I almost, you know, one of the problems I have with a Star Wars movie just in general is just the way I view it because I always like want to rewrite it in my head afterwards. And one of the things that I kept thinking is like, hmm, what if Poe had just stayed with Finn and they, the three of them with Ray got together at that point in time and made their way off world? That might have been okay. Uh, that's basically what happened, except substitute Poe for Han Solo. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you mentioned that before. Poe, I think, oh, is I've kept, the casualty I've kept on. of... You would have kept Han there, too? Well, I don't want to go too too much into how I would have rewritten it, but I think it would have been <laughs> cooler. I think it would have been cooler if Han had been the one who, undercover, you know, took Poe out that far and that he never lost the Falcon. Like, they, like he just pulled them in. Like, hey, what took you so long? Hey, who are these guys? I mean, I think that would have just... Because that, that whole scene, and I'm jumping ahead, but that, that whole scene with the monster and the two rival gangs and Hans back into smuggling, I didn't care for that. I, did, I didn't like that side story of Han left to do the only thing he was ever good at. I, oh, I, I just wish Han had been involved in the mission all along and he was there to rescue Poe or he was waiting for Poe to come back. Like he took him out that far in the larger ship and deployed him in that side. I just wish there was something else going on there. Well... The only thing that I can say about Poe that he, I mean, he was a great pilot. 
anybody that's played Battlefront and tried to use an X-Wing the way he has, he's a great pilot. It, not saying that it couldn't be done, but it takes a lot of practice. The only thing I could say is that he didn't have the smolder. You know, Harrison Ford has the smolder. He used to have the smolder back in the day. He, you know, he gets on screen and 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 the cellulose starts melting, you know. Poe kind of reminds me of the friend who was ugly until he hit 15 and he doesn't really really realize he's a good-looking guy. So there's no smolder there, you know what I mean? And I think that I don't want to be him like I wanted to be Han Solo. That's the difference. And I think they could change that. There's a lot of potential here. He's a likable character. He's a good actor. You know, we're going to see him come up in some things, you know, X-Men movie. He's going to be Apocalypse and things like that. So we're going to see if he can he can spread his wings. But there, there's potential with him. You know, he's not unlikable. But while Poe may not be likable for you, I think the one character that almost everybody can agree that they like is BB-8, our new droid. And how much fun was he? He is adorable and he's hilarious. I, I love BB-8. I, like, I was kind of iffy on him at first because it was felt a lot like an R2-D2 replacement. And I was like... It, it, it was it was but like at the same time it wasn't the same it was he's a different character he's actually a character in and of himself and so i appreciate that and when he did the little lighter thing with finn that was i was like okay i'm sold i love you you're adorable <laughs> yeah bb8 is is awesome you're able to get a lot more at least i felt you could get more emotion out of the weird sounds it was making, courtesy of the guy that plays Stefan on Saturday Night Live, which is a little weird. Um, you get more emotions out of him and just sort of the, the tilts of the head on top of the main ball. Then it seemed like you could really get out of, I would even say, Chopper and R2-D2. Uh, granted, very different personality between Chopper and BB-8, but just absolutely enthralling. In fact, as we're recording, I am wearing a BB-8 shirt and I own almost no Star Wars clothing. You know, one thing I liked about BB-8, and this is another comparison to the prequels, this was a cute, adorable sidekick kind of character that didn't annoy in a Jar Jar way. His purpose in the film was clear. The things he accomplished were obvious and made sense to the plot. And yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean, of course, he was just filling the R2 role of carrying the important message and get in the back of the X-Wing. And, you know, he's he's a droid. I mean, boom, that's what he does. But, you know, the biggest problem I have with Jar Jar, aside from some of the goofy antics, is the fact that he just didn't serve a purpose. You know, when Qui-Gon said, hey, this Gungan could be useful to us, and he never was, that, that to me is what was the cinematic error in Jar Jar, not the annoying antics, though that was the icing on the cake. BB-8 was vital, had a role, but then was the good, oh, that's kind of cool. I like him. He's cute. Oh, man, he's funny. Oh, let's see what BB-8 will do here. He he was intriguing, pulled you further into the movie instead of pushing you out of it. Sidebar, in Jar Jar's defense, of course, Jar Jar was necessary and did have a role to play in The Phantom Menace. If you have no Jar Jar, you have no idea to bring in the Gungan army, and you don't have him as the way to get to Boss Nass and bring in the Gungan army. He was oh, useful, oh, I, just I, not in the same way. I argue that uh, Queen Amidala could have figured that out on her own. Hey, did you say you ran into some Gungans there? Let's get up with them. 
I would have been okay if Jar Jar had simply piloted the sub from point A to point B. But anyway. You know, the one thing that they did about BB-8 was, and there's no question, no secret, that I'm not a big fan of R2. That there's only you can only do so much with R2. You can only do so much with Chopper. Meaning that their dome turns left to right. They can move their body kind of up and down. They can move forward, backward, and kind of in a circle, and they kind of shake, you know? And with those small gestures and things that it can do, it has to come across. They have to make that come across with all the feelings of, of sadness and emotion and anger, happiness. The way they did with BB-8 is the droid can move his head up and down. So if you ask BB-8 a question, it could, put, it could nod yes or no. It could nod, uh, you know, I don't know. It has so much more emotion that you can bring out to it just in its design. Looking at it move is is just by hit rolling and that ball motion and having its design, you know, flip over. It's kind of mesmerizing. You want to watch it move every time it, it moves. So by just doing that, they've taken the droid to the next level again. So this is another example of how Disney has taken what we've known and just kind of rebooted it and upped it just that that much more. And apparently he can give a thumbs up. Yeah, with the fire. You know, cooler than 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 R2 giving a thumbs up. You know, who knew that that BB-8 had all these these little extra compartments where he could have a little flamethrower and grappling hooks or what have you. You know, what else is in that little BB-8 droid? I mean, it is a much more interesting droid than the droids that's come before than R2. I mean, I mean, I start to like R2, but BB-8 is a lot more interesting droid to watch around on the screen. Of course, I have to admit, Barrett, when I was listening to him, especially the second viewing, I found myself thinking about this the second viewing. He's, you know, he's verbalizing. I'm, I'm going, now, does Barrett think he's swearing? I wonder. <laughs> you know, I, I listened to BB-8 and I thought about swearing. And no, BB-8 is an angel, man. BB-8 is a good droid. BB-8's not swearing at all. I think BB-8 would be shocked to have to listen to R2 and Chopper at a poker table somewhere, or Dejaric table. Anyway, so we've talked about the, I'd say, the light side characters from the new film. Let's talk about our big baddie, Kylo Ren, or, as he's also known, Ben Solo. This is the character they've really sort of built up as our as the villain of the the new trilogy, or at least that's how I've interpreted that he's really going to be the one we're going up. He's the new Vader. And in fact, we see him almost praying to Vader later in this film. And I don't know. I, I think he almost lost something when he took off the mask, <laughs> but what do you guys think of this one? You know, I, number one, I just like what they did with the character. I like the design, like the voice. I liked how he carried himself. I liked his role in the first order. I, I think the character worked. What I really liked, though, was he wasn't a one and done character. The fact that, it, you know, quite frankly, I like you guys, I probably without even trying had a dozen philosophies going through my head, none of which was that he was Luke Skywalker. I never believed that. I actually thought that he that Luke was either in exile, which, yeah, we probably all figured that out to some degree, or Kylo Ren had kidnapped him, like was holding him to gain force power from those are my two big theories one of those two things right so i didn't exactly have in my head though it was a competing theory that he was necessarily related to anybody 
And the moment they said, hey, it's your grandfather or the grandson of, you know, however the uh, snow could put it. I was like, oh, okay, good, good. So that's what they're going to do. And I, then I was on pins and needles the rest of the movies. Like, is his name going to be Jason? Is his name going to be Jason? Oh, come on, make it Jason, make it Jason. Then we get Ben. And I know that's not quite, quite the question you're asking about the character, but I thought it was sort of an odd choice to give him what was essentially Luke and Mara's kid's name. It's like they're shuffling the deck and using a little shorthand to tell all four kids' stories in one. I have a hard time with Kylo Ren. I don't know if I like him or not. And I, I, I've been kind of mulling over this for several days. And I, I can't decide <laughs> if I like him or not. When he has the mask on, I think he's awesome. He's intimidating. I love that he's this weird, conflicted character that is struggling. He's not a perfect villain. I like that he's still kind of trying to become something better. He's a wannabe. I like I like that. I think it's different and it's new. But when he takes that mask off, I have such a hard time taking him seriously. All I can see is a young Severus Snape from Harry Potter. I can't unsee it. <laughs> it just really throws me out of the movie when he's running around with that long, poofy hair. And maybe in subsequent movies, it'll it'll be a little bit better. Maybe he'll change his hairdo. But I have a very hard time with him when he doesn't have that mask on. I think we're going to see the slow progression, though, of him being kind of at the end of the day, still a young kid into something far worse. And obviously his actions against Han and getting injured and getting the lightsaber through the face. I think we're going to start seeing that progression. So I, I kind of liked it that underneath the villainous mask and the and the voice and everything is really just a. I don't want to say a boy because we're not talking with, you know, episode one Anakin here, but he's still a kid of some variety, still an adolescent, it seems like. And I don't know, Nathan, if we have a an age for him. I, I interpret him in his early 20s. Uh, adolescent's not quite the term I'm looking for, but maybe you guys, you know, know what I mean. Someone who's still trying to figure out what he wants to be when he grows up and, 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 and is starting his career, let's say, and hasn't got it all figured out yet. Well, they have given us an answer on the age. Uh, Pablo Hidalgo gave the answer that if you want relative ages of characters, Ray's 19, Finn's 23, and Kylo, who a lot of people were saying, could he be a twin to Ray? No, he is 29 to 30. He was basically, basically Han and Leia got busy very, very quickly after the Battle of Endor, and he pops out before the end of that year, basically. So he's 29 to 30 at this point. Uh, I gotta say, this is my absolute favorite character of the new film. I mean, Kylo Ren fascinates me. I always found the most interesting thing about Anakin slash Vader was the psychology. But a lot of that was stuff you had to sort of figure out and, and sort of put together mentally because a lot of the, the bits and pieces of it don't really show up as much on screen. You had to sort of rationalize his actions based on thinking about the psychology. In this case, the psychology is right there on screen. I actually don't like it when he's wearing the mask because to me that just, the, the voice modulation, all the dents in the mask, it takes away from the character. You take that off and he is this conflicted young man who, I mean, there, he gets all kinds of crap now from certain elements within Phantom as Darth Tantrum or he's the emo Knight of Ren or the emo Sith. <laughs> um, but I mean, he really is a conflicted character. I mean, he grows up as the child 
of Han and Leia winds up training with Luke Skywalker, turns on Luke, uh, is, is sort of tempted in towards the dark by Snoke, winds up ruining everything. Luke goes into exile because of him. Snoke still hasn't finished his training, but we got sort of this sense that he is someone who... He, he feels the call, and this is something the novelization touches on a little bit too, he feels a call to the light, but he's not a Sith. He is dark side. He's trying to also sort of use elements of the light side, but doesn't want to be corrupted by them, corrupted by the sentimentality that Vader was corrupted by that caused Vader to fail in what he wants to continue in bringing order to the galaxy and so forth. That if only Vader hadn't been seduced by the love of his own son, Nothing like that would have happened. The, the Empire would have continued. And you get that scene of him on the bridge with Han. And there, there's a lot of this sort of question of, well, is he just trying to trick Han? What's the deal? You know, is he saying these things to lure him in? I don't see any of that as a trick. You know, he says, you know, he's speaking about how he is feeling like he's being torn apart, that he wants to get away from the pain, that... He he knows what he needs to do, but he doesn't know if he has the strength to do it. And in that conversation, we as the audience are like, oh, he is about to kill Han. We can see it coming miles away. But from the character standpoint, it, understand Han and, and Kylo Ren are looking at the same conversation from two different perspectives. I am totally of the mind that when he pulls out that lightsaber, Han is thinking that Kylo is going to ask him to kill himself. Like, like not, not Han kill himself, but help me commit suicide, father. As opposed to it being, I'm going to kill you, father. But from Kylo Ren's perspective, it is all total honesty, right? I'm being torn apart. I want to get rid of the pain. I know what I need to do. Kill my father and sever my ties to the light in order to do it. But I don't know if I have the strength to. And then, boom, thank you. It's an honest thank you to Han, which is screwed up to us psychologically, but it makes sense for the character. I mean, every step of the way, he just grew more complex throughout the film. And on a second viewing... I just absolutely became enthralled by this character. The only thing that bothered me about it was how lame it was when they revealed his connection to Han. I mean, imagine if they had waited and it had been just Ben or something, or even he sees it and then when he shows up and Leia comes, he says, I saw him. I saw our son. That could have been the bomb. Instead, it's Snoke saying, the droid's in the possession of your father, Han Solo. And we're like, oh, Okay. Nathan, I am right there with you. I thought that was like – it was almost so underdramatic that we just kind of – oh, by the way. And I think they they really could have gone for that emotional punch that we got in Empire Strikes Back with the reveal that Vader is Luke's father or even the slightly more – I mean, well, slightly more – anything was more shocking than this revelation. But maybe a, a little bit more like we got in Jedi with the fact that Luke and Leia were were siblings. Here it's it's tossed away. Now, to your comment about Ren and Han on the bridge, I took this as a different way. I feel that Kylo Ren really is torn between the two. He doesn't he when he's on that bridge and he's confronting Han, he doesn't know what he's doing because he is he's dropped his mask and he hands his lightsaber out. I don't think he's asking Han to kill him. I think he's asking Han to take care of him, to let me come back. And then the the sun goes dark with the Star Killer pulling, you know, pulling the power from the sun, and that's kind of his wake up because then his grip on the saber gets tighter, and that's when Han is killed. 
So I don't know that I agree with you saying that Ren wanted to commit suicide there. I didn't say yeah, he wanted I'm... to commit. I didn't say he wanted to commit suicide. I said that might be what Han was thinking when he pulls out the saber and doesn't immediately ignite it. I'm just saying that throughout I... it seems like he's being honest. I don't think he I think he's being honest, but I don't think he knows what he wants. I don't think he knows what he needs. And I don't believe that Han would have been looking that as a way to kill his son, you know, that his son was asking him to commit to help him commit suicide. I, I just I don't see that in that. But bear in mind what he's doing here, though. It's it's uh, will you help me? Yes. Anything. And then he pulls the saber and Han doesn't get a chance to say anything else. Uh, I don't I'm not saying that I think that Han would have gone through with helping Kylo Ren kill himself or or would have killed Kylo Ren more just sort of that shock moment of he wants me to help him. And now he's pulled out his lightsaber. Holy crap. Is he asking me to, to, to end his pain based on the way he was phrasing it? OK, I'll stop. I'll stop. I love the character. I will stop. <laughs> Here's my issue with Kylo Ren. And I understand what you're saying, Nathan, about he does have the most complex psychology of all the characters. He is torn, but the performance that is given here, I mean, Adam Driver gave a better performance as Abe Lincoln's uh, male reader uh, back in that movie than he gives right here. I mean, he's the Hayden Christensen of the film. He's just not- No. Oh, come on. When he takes off his helmet, he looks like the Gerber baby in a wig. Oh, honkers. Oh, come on. He is not giving- to me, I'm just giving my opinion here. He is not giving me in all the scenes what he should be doing. He's much more powerful in with the helmet on to me. Hmm. And I think there's potential here. There's potential here for for him, because what's what's interesting about Kylo for me is that he is a good guy who wants to be bad. Usually in the Star Wars universe, we have good guys who go the dark side or who become bad people, you know, bad people who do bad things is because they have no choice. This doesn't seem to be the case here. He doesn't seem like he was pushed into a situation where he had to turn to the dark side or else. It seems like, like this is something he wants to do. And that's fascinating for me, for a, a Jedi, for a character that was training with Luke Skywalker, the famed Luke Skywalker, for one of his Jedis who just wants to be evil just for the sake of wanting to be evil is that is something we've never seen before. And it opens up a whole bunch of possibilities because what it does is it releases him from another character in his position of not being able to kill his, his parent. And we won't hold that against him. For some reason, I'm not holding that against him that he's the one that killed Han Solo. And in that, it works. It works for that character here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, though, that it's a it's a really cool dynamic for a character. And of course, he's probably not seeing it this way, but wanting to go to the dark side and he's fighting off the urges to go to the light. It, it, you're right. It's usually Vader. You know, Vader in the original trilogy was like, it's it's too late for me, son. I'm going to take the emperor now. There's nothing else I can do. You you kind of got the sense that he realized yeah, I shouldn't be doing this, but I, I, I can't. I can't. Right. No, no. Kylo Ren's like, man, I, I'm struggling. I don't know if I have the strength to do this, which is to kill you and get you out of my life so I can fully be the bad guy. That is super cool. And to, what you guys were talking earlier, I, I'm mostly in Nathan's camp on that, on, on interpreting that scene, except for the suicide part. I, I think he was 
I interpreted just just what was going through my mind watching the movie was let me take out the lightsaber and hand it to you, dad, as a sign to show you that, yeah, I, I, I want to step away from this. I need some some cleansing, some something, you know, just just take the lightsaber before I kill again. That's that's how I took it. And Jerry, that's how I interpreted it as well. I think that that's how I interpret it as well. I mean, Kylo Ren is such an interesting character in that respect. I mean, we've never heard a character that is basically feeling the pull to the light. We always hear, you know, the pull toward the dark side is so strong and everything. But this is one who's actually trying to fight being good. But, you know, a couple of questions that come up in this film. Where the heck did they get these things? Where, how did he get Vader's melted helmet from Endor? And, you know, on an unrelated topic, how in God's name did they get Luke's saber back? Remind me what lies beneath Cloud City, because when Luke fell out into what we always call the weather vane, we see objects wasn't clear to me on screen what it was, but we see objects drop out when he's looking down. I assumed it was his hand and lightsaber. But what is actually beneath them? It's a gas giant. But there is a surface based. Well, Assuming that they're keeping the way that it existed previously within the Legends continuity, there is a surface of of it. It's just way down there and pretty inhospitable. Well, there's a surface to Jupiter, too, but you can't really go there because (laughs) the atmospheric pressure will just kill everything. So it's like I, I didn't actually realize when Maz pulled out that lightsaber at first that it was the first one. And then like 10 seconds afterwards, like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I, that, that, that is a something that every single person I have spoken to about this movie has had agreements with. It's like, how on earth did they get this lightsaber? The, the melted helmet to me makes more sense. Maybe Luke kept it. He was the one who burned Vader's body. Maybe he kept the helmet. Maybe it was something that he picked up and was going to maybe get rid of in another way. And then it got kept as a family heirloom. Who knows? Wouldn't want to see that on the mantle. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm with you, Jen. I just figured that maybe if nothing else, I'll leave it burning or it burned out. I guess you don't want to leave a, a fire going on Endor, but it burned out. I'm just leaving it there because who's going to find it on Endor? Who goes to Endor except for Star Tours? Yeah, Kylo went to Endor and slaughtered some Ewoks for that thing. Um, <laughs> the Plasteel, I think it's still called Plasteel, didn't melt all the way. So that makes sense that he could have went and found it, especially if uh, the moon of Endor is just a bunch of Ewoks. There's not really going to be any people going there. So I can understand that. Now, the lightsaber is a little bit harder to understand. The lightsaber in Maz Kanata's hand uh, is a little perplexing for me as well. And, it'll, and I think it's a little different reason than the rest of you guys. But magnets... You know, if there's magnets, the me- the lightsaber's metal. You could find the lightsaber if you had a strong magnet. So, but the fact that Maz Kanata had the lightsaber in her possession this whole time, or however long she had it, and is an ally of the Republic and the Resistance, why didn't she give him the lightsaber a long time ago? They knew that they were looking for Skywalker, right? That, I think, is the bigger question, is, is why didn't she hand it over earlier? We know that she she knows about the Force, and she can even feel the Force, apparently, according to the guide material, but she isn't a Jedi. But surely she would have sort of 
felt a need to hand that off, unless it's something where she had sort of that intuition that, you know, someday someone will be called to this, which is kind of a stretch. There is an answer, though, of how she gets it, to an extent. Uh, very similar uh, to an extent to the Emperor's Trophy, which is the legend's way of dealing with it. The idea is that the the Imperials recover it before they leave Cloud City. So it must not have been one of those items that fall past Luke with all the other trash that's falling. And it winds up in the hands of a particular stormtrooper that's supposed to be, I don't know, traveling with it, keeping it safe, delivering it somewhere, whatever. And there's a recent ebook, and an ebook exclusive that's not seeing print, called The Perfect Weapon that stars Bazin Natal. That is the weird lady in the silver and black with the painted fingers that reports to the First Order that, that Han and them are there when they're at Maz's in the film. Uh, one of the few times we see subtitles in the film. She is the one who is hired to recover it and winds up getting her hands on it, and she's the one who winds up eventually it gets delivered because of her to Maz. Though... The time frame, they, I mean, the time frames are all kind of up in the air in this film. You know, the Millennium Falcon hasn't flown in years. Okay, so when was it stolen by Duquesne, then by the Irving boys, then by Unkar Plutt, in order for them to have it sitting on Jakku? Okay, she's had this lightsaber for, quote-unquote, ages. Okay, so when did Bazine get her hands on this relative to the Bazine that we see now? Because she's not an old lady. I don't know, there's... Questions as to when this would necessarily happen, but that is at least a little bit of an explanation. They have told us how the lightsaber gets back. They don't call it out as a lightsaber, but it's that box with the special item in it. So, yeah, it's the lightsaber. I hope someone so, does a special edition where they insert Maza saying, oh, Han, that's, that's a question to be answered in a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> so they knew the importance of this saber, or is Maz the only one at the end game who has it, who knows the importance of the saber. Does it explain that in the ebook? No, I mean, in the ebook, basically, it's the MacGuffin. It's just something that is very valuable, very special that she's supposed to get her hands on and deliver. If I remember correctly, I don't think she even opens the box during the course mm. of it. It's just, you are hired to get this. It is your bounty, no questions asked. So the, the, the lightsaber isn't a sentient being like it is in The Force Awakens, where it doesn't call out to her. Well, it's not anyone. the lightsaber that's sentient. It's the Force calling out. Nobody's, there's not, we, I think we got into this earlier. Suffice to say, the lightsaber itself is not sentient. So we've talked around it. We've talked a little bit about them. Let's talk about some of the returning characters, some of our favorites, our old friends from the original trilogy, Han, Leia, and Chewie. I really liked Han in this. I mean, it came came through very clearly that Harrison Ford seemed to be at least enjoying the role or at least throwing himself into it. But the funny thing is, when I walked out of the first showing, I was like, was he playing Han Solo or was he playing Indiana Jones? Did anybody else get that? I certainly got a little bit of the Crystal Skull Indiana Jones from this. And maybe just that's... Hard not to see it because of the close proximity of the ages. The one thing I thought that was weird, though, was and I, ha and I have to think the lines were written and cut and spliced differently. But when Ray says you're Han Solo, his response is I used to be. I was like, no, it, she didn't ask. You're you're a rebel general. You're a rebel leader. Oh, I used to be. He's, she said you're Han Solo. I used to be. What the heck does that mean? 
I took that as like he doesn't even really know who he is anymore. Like he that this after seeing the whole movie that the incident that happened with with Ben kind of tore him up and he's just kind of floating through life. He's not really really thinking about who he is as a person. He's just kind of existing. Dang it. Ahsoka says Kanan's more Jedi than she is. And here is the issue with Han Solo. Now, the performance of Han Solo, I agree with you, Jerry. I think Harrison, I mean, I agree with you, Jonathan. I think Harrison Ford really did have a good time with the role. I think it's no secret that he really did not come to a lot of the conventions or the signings. And, you know, Natalie Portman doesn't either over the years. And maybe he got talked into it because he knew he was going to die. Maybe not. Maybe he embraced the role one more time. That's what I want to believe. I want to believe he embraced the role one more time and wanted to give the fans one more Han Solo adventure. And he did that. And you can say the performance, I think, was was on top. I didn't see the Crystal Skull, but I can see it was a little different. I mean, he's a little older. But he wasn't as gruff as I thought he was going to be. You know, I expected him to start complaining and be as gruff. He was funny. He was likable. You know, he was running and and making the faces and stuff like Han Solo. The line he says to Chewie, where he says, I'll talk my way out of it. And Chewie says something. He goes, I do. Every time. I mean, I, that was pretty funny. That was that was classic Han Solo right there, pointing at Chewie and stuff. But some of the decisions that they've made concerning Han Solo and his character, like him quitting, I, I don't agree with that. The last time we saw him, they blew up a Death Star. The second Death Star. And he's going to quit because of that? I just don't I don't agree with that. I don't understand that. It makes more sense for Luke to go into exile than it does for Han. And then for Han to go back and still smuggle to do illegal activities where he's known throughout the galaxy, but he's trying to be not known. I mean, I, I think that was a mistake. And where whoever along the line made these decisions to do that and take him and separate him from the Millennium Falcon. I mean, I, that is just ridiculous for the Millennium Falcon to be stolen from them and them not being able to find it for such a long time. And then two minutes after they're in space, they find it. It's just, those are MacGuffins that are hard to swallow as a true fan. I mean, my license plate says Kessel Run, man. The 12 parsec line in there was was <laughs> great. I mean, it was very funny. I mean, 12 parsecs because... Everybody gets that wrong. Ask your wife right now how many parsecs it took for the Millennium Falcon to make in the Castle Run. I bet you they'll say 14. So they made some decisions that I think a lot of Star Wars fans like myself, it was hard to swallow. The difficulty I had with Han Solo is his his death. Um, I loved him in, in the film, but I had a very difficult time with the way he was killed. I, I was... 100% certain that someone from the original trilogy was going to die in this movie, even before I had gotten spoilers um, about Han Solo way back, like a year ago. But I feel like he was kind of used wastefully. If we had had some moment, like, like he has that moment with Leia where she's like, go get him. He's our son. You know, you're his father. And 
he's been running away for so long. I feel like there was something that should have been said in there. Like, did he, did he have a moment in a previous encounter where he, he chose not to confront him? He chose not to talk to Ben because, you know, in his mind there was too much Vader in him. And like, he feels like regret for that or, or Leia harbors something against him for that. I feel like there's more story there that would have made his death very meaningful and instead, to me, it came off as if he was just getting punked to make Kylo Ren seem a little bit more uh, dangerous than he actually is. And that really bothered me. In fact, the, the use of all three of the original trilogy characters really was upsetting to me because there's there's no joy in this movie. Um, there's a lot of sorrow and regret and and nobody's happy. The original trilogy characters are all in really pretty dark places and they stay there and it gets worse and it's very depressing um i remember walking out of the theater thinking most of what i saw was funny but it wasn't happy and and i feel like han's use is kind of the culmination of that where he's funny he's wonderful i really love him when he's on screen interacting with the other characters this might be my favorite Han Solo uh, in any of the three movies in some ways, but I, I don't feel like he was used effectively. You know, the one thing I will say, and, I, and I've heard folks comment that, hey, Han should have went out in some sort of blaze of glory. And the thing that I keep thinking, though, is what scenario do you set up for Han that would be a blaze of glory when we've seen him do the things he's done? I I liked better the the emotional death of, hey, I'm not fighting a battle right now. I'm not fighting a rebellion. I'm not trying to fight for peace in the Republic and the galaxy. I'm just trying to be a good dad here in the in the final moments of this movie or in his you're in his mind repairing the one relationship that I should never have let be destroyed. And I died trying to save my son. And that to me was the most noble way. I I was thrilled by the way, they did. I, I have zero complaints about the choice they made, how the scene played out. I mean, we talked the scene a little bit earlier, but I, I had no complaints about that whatsoever. I thought that was spot on. I mentioned earlier that I wish that Han had just been more involved in the resistance, like he was involved in Poe's mission versus I, I, I didn't like the whole I'm off doing my smuggler thing because I just I, I just can't be around it. Leia doesn't want to see me. And uh, that that to me, I thought is a place that Han Solo wouldn't have went based on the things he's seen. Like one of you guys had mentioned earlier. I think his portrayal, Harrison Ford's portrayal of Han, you can tell every once in a while how it's hampered by his injuries. And when they're on the Aravana, that's the freighter when they're on the Aravana and they're trying to run away from the wrath Tars, you can sort of see that he's just barely kind of jogging through um, that. If this was, a, if this was real life, he'd be dead already. Right. But you could see sort of a joy, it seemed, at times that Harrison Ford brought to the performance a fun that he was having, probably because he expected he was going to die. And he, this is the last one he was going to be in. He was a star in this one. Um, certainly more so than it felt like back in Crystal Skull, right? So it seemed like he came back to this wanting to go out in a blaze of performance glory, so to speak. I do think that the way that he died shows a lot of growth for the character. He's a far cry from where we met him back in A New Hope and probably from where we're eventually going to meet him in that Han Solo anthology film where they show his origins and whatnot. It was a little weird. I didn't like the way they first brought him into the film. Him and Chewie. I think Chewie, Chewie felt like more of a presence in this movie 
But for some reason, Chewie always just kind of felt a little weird to me in the film. I think it's because they redid the mask or something. But bringing them in, it sort of made sense to me that he would have possibly have walked away with what happened with his son and having to sort of deal with it in his own way because that's the way they dealt with it in Legends. When Chewbacca died saving Anakin Solo in Vector Prime, Han went on a very dark downward spiral for quite a while uh, during the Yuuzhan Vong War before he comes back around and sort of reconciles with Leia to continue the fight. So it felt in keeping with the character of what we knew from before, from previous incarnations of the character. But bringing him in, the idea of them saying, okay, well, well, the novelization at least says, you know, there was a signal that was activated when the ship was powered up for the first time in years. Okay, that makes sense for me to find it that way. I'd love to see the story of how he lost it. We only get a brief glimpse of someone trying to steal it or trying to get their hands on the ship for, I think it's Duquesne in uh, the the framing story of Smuggler's Run that was released recently. But the whole Rathtar thing, that's what got me. That is the part of the movie that doesn't feel Star Wars to me. You bring him in and you get this great Han Solo moment and the banter going, and yes, I knew him, yes, I remember him, and I used to be Han Solo, this whole sort of I don't know who I am anymore thing. Great moments. And then they throw in the idiotic tentacle monster chase that reminds me a lot of you know, hey, let's have Kirk get chased by a monster so we can find old Spock in Abrams' Star Trek from 2009. The whole Wrath Tars thing was what bothered me most about Han's introduction. Everything else about Han I loved in this movie, but good God, the Wrath Tars were stupid. I'll agree with you. Those Wrath Tars, they didn't feel very Star Wars to me. They did feel more Star Trek. The character of Han, you know, I, I jokingly say that... You know, he seemed uh, Indiana Jones to me. But when I sit back and I watch this performance, I do feel that this is the first time we've really seen Han in the limelight. That, you know, he he's he's front and center and he's it's really his movie in a lot of ways. Anytime he's on the screen, the way he deals with the other characters, the way he uh, almost attempts to take Ray under his wing. And we'll get we'll get to it in a minute you know, if we th- feel there's any type of familial relationship there. I just, I did. I liked Han, and I kind of agree with Jerry. He's come through so much as a character. He's gotten away with so many things. He's he survived things that he had no right to survive. If he was going to go, it needed to come like that. I wouldn't want to see him blow up in the Falcon or something. So we've discussed Han. What about Leia? How'd you guys like her? Because... I I mean, yeah, it's great to see Carrie Fisher back, but wow, it just it seemed a little off to me. <laughs> um, you know, from the way they dressed her to even the way she sounded, just I mean, I know it's been a number of years and I know she's had a rough time of things, but this wasn't the princess that we knew. I, I can't help but to be just taken back by her voice. I mean the way it's changed over the years and you know we we we've heard her talk a lot in the last 10 15 years so i i i've i've known it i didn't fully appreciate how messed up her voice was and i don't know what's i mean i don't know if there's anything wrong with it or if it's just purely aging but i first realized it in the robot chicken specials when i realized that she had done her the princess leia voice in some of those i was like wait wait a minute that was actually carrie fisher Wow. And yeah, whether it's the drugs or her therapies or whatever she's done to herself, it wasn't right. That said, she looked 10 times better than I expected. 
Not to say she looked great. I'm not totally convinced there wasn't some CG help in some places because uh, I don't think she looked the same consistently. So maybe that's just different points in time, shooting, pickup shots, whatever. It was a little off, but I'm glad her role was just very minimal and just connected some dots without her being her, you know, trying to make her heroic in any way. They celebrated the Battle of Endor with a lot of drinking and drugs, apparently. Um, you know, I'm right there with you. I think that there was something off about her. I think one, yeah, the voice, her, her voice and the way it's changed didn't sound very Leia-esque based on the way that we had been used to her in the past. But I think it's more than that. I think it's sort of the way the character was written. She's the one who was willing to step away from the Republic and say, look, if you guys are engaging in this Cold War and you want to keep it cold no matter what they're doing in their buildup, then somebody's got to step out and be preparing some kind of resistance. Somebody has to be ready to take the fight to them because otherwise they're going to hit us, right? It's the, it's the 9-11 thing. They're at war with us. We are not at war with them. We need to get with the program. So from what they did with her and sort of pushing her into that role again, especially after, you know, Ben does what he does, made sense. But all of the lines that they gave her didn't really seem like it was Leia. Like the whole, you know, I heard about the girl. I'm sorry, but you need to tell us everything you know. And you need to tell us everything you know. And dude, you really need to tell us everything you know. It just really didn't feel like Leia in how she was written. And that may just be the idea that, well, time changes people. And that's fine. But it, it did seem a little off. Well, I'm going to disagree with both of you. I thought that... I like the Princess Leia character. She felt very familiar to me. Yeah, her her the way she talks kind of out of the side of her mouth is a little different and her voice is different. And she's a little bit off, I guess, but I, all of them were a little bit off. I mean, C-3PO was a little bit off to me. And I don't know if it's the Disney touch to it or what, but she's a general now. It's It's very easy for me to believe that she... It was either she was going to continue to be a general or be in the Senate somehow. And I, they chose to make her a general. And people respect her. And that's where I think Princess Leia would be. I mean, she's old. People get old. They don't stay sexy. They don't stay as charismatic as, as they used to be. One of the things I did, I didn't mind. If she had some CGI help, so what? I mean, so did... Peter Mayhew, that wasn't Chewbacca running around, throwing those bombs around. He had some ha some help somewhere. So give her a little CGI help. I kind of wish that she showed a little Jedi potential, besides the fact that she was able to feel when Han got killed. I was kind of disappointed that she wasn't using the Force more. She's the only one that says, may the Force be with you in the whole film. So I'm glad that she got mm -hmm. that line. But I wanted her to have been some trained in the Force. It just doesn't make sense to me that Luke would go and train everyone else that wants to be trained, but Leia doesn't get trained at all. Which could have been a addition. It could have been addition in her role where she could have kind of taken Ray and started her training maybe a little bit. But who knows how Carrie Fisher is on set? You know who knows? You know. But from what I saw that she was adequate as Princess Leia for me. It did not take anything away from the film for me. She was too old. Yes, too old to begin the training. But Luke doesn't care about that. True, Luke will train anybody, apparently, even people who will 
turn on him. Although it, it is an interesting departure. That is one thing that a lot of people have brought up is that in Leia's depiction here, maybe she had some political background the way that she did within the Legends continuity, but in Legends she eventually gets to a point where she steps away from that to become a Jedi, and in this case it seems she made the opposite decision, which is interesting. I recall J.J. saying something along the lines of Leia has better things to do than to go and do a lot of Jedi training in an interview somewhere. He said that like where she she's too busy doing political stuff and she's too busy running um, the things that she's been doing her whole life to to be worrying about um, becoming a Jedi. Um, I, I, I don't re- I don't recall where I read that. <laughs> but, um I actually still really liked her. A lot of people were giving her beef. I, I had a feeling a lot of people wouldn't like that, you know, she's aged and her voice has gotten lower. And, um, but I thought she was nice. I thought she did a good job. She, she came across to me as this is a woman who has had a lot of really awful stuff happen to her. And she's kind of taken refuge in, you know, the kind of cold and calculating nature of her job she's she's one of those people who's takes solace in her work and there really is not a lot else left in her life and so she's kind of you know kind of dried up and empty inside and so she doesn't have a lot of it's it's hard for people like that to muster a lot of enthusiasm or or vigor in their conversations so i i actually thought it played very well to the story that they had derived for her that doesn't make it well for han solo either does it that leia is a character who sticks around and Han Solo isn't. So that that says a lot for Leia, even if it doesn't bode well for Han Solo. But I agree with you. I thought she did uh, an adequate job. And, and she can get better. You know, she can get better. But I think that that was a nice, that was JJ in the interview. That was just a nice way of saying that Carrie Fisher can't really act anymore like she used to be. And if she could act, we probably would have seen her doing some Jedi stuff. But she just probably can't can't make it like she used to, you know? And I bring up Peter Mayhew, and you said, Nathan, that something was different about Chewbacca's mask, and it was the, it was a little bit lighter. It was almost like it was a different Wookiee. And Jerry, you brought up the fact about the injuries. I mean, it, it was very clear when you have Ray and Finn, and they first meet Han and Chewie on the Millennium Falcon, and... Han, Chewie, and Ray continue to walk through the corridor, and all you see is, is Chewie standing there. <laughs> and I kept thinking that nobody could find uh, Mayhew's Jedi cane or something like that, so he couldn't walk with him. Well, I mean, Chewie had help because there was a there was a second gentleman who was playing Chewie. So there was oh yeah, a, uh, at least with Chewbacca, you can easily do the stunt double aspect of it. Um, well, here's the thing was that when we see Chewie, we know Chewie runs. Chewie kind of runs with his bowcaster at kind of a shuffle. And when they had this other person running, it was like a-holes and elbows. You know what I mean? It was like a totally different run. And I was just like, <laughs> make him run like Chewie, Jay. Just JJ, tell him to run like Chewie, you know, but it was a whole, totally different run. So it was a little off. You know, that that was a little off as well. Like you said, Nathan, I agree with that, that. He was a little off. It was almost like his eyes were squinted, right? He didn't have the big, chewy eyes. Well, Wookiee's age, too. I mean, we wouldn't expect any of the others to look the same. I mean, it's been 30 years. Sure, Chewie's going to look a little bit different. But, you know, you guys have talked about Mayhew. There's still a couple of times, mostly in the close-up, non-moving things, where, you know, you could tell Mayhew was in the suit because he's got that 
those movements, some of that, the head tilts or the, the other body language that's just so characteristic Chewbacca that nobody else could do. You know, overall, looking at how well, though not perfect, but how well the original cast did here, it, it, it angers me more that Lucas did not choose in 1997 to film a sequel. I mean, if you look at Carrie Fisher in Austin Powers, she still had her voice. She still looked relatively normal, for lack of better words. And quite frankly, it was almost 20 years ago. I really wish we would have gotten the 789 that told the story of a Ben Solo joining a new Jedi Order and utterly destroying it to where we could then come back to this now versus getting the prequels. I mean, that's that's how well I think all of this collectively works compared to, man, really, why did you give us the, the prequels? We didn't we didn't need to see that store. That said, moving on to some two other characters, if I can. I was really disappointed in how worthless C-3PO and R2-D2 were in this movie. They did a whole lot more in Rebels than they did in this movie. Another misstep, I think, is C-3PO was kind of funny. You know, he has the red arm. And I think there's a comic book that explains how he gets the red arm because we see him at the end. He has his gold arm again. But the fact that R2-D2 is in some sort of depression mode... And again, he has a piece of the map to locate Luke Skywalker. So you have Maz Kanata with the lightsaber. You have the person who gives his piece of the map to Poe. And then you have R2-D2 with his piece. So they've had all the pieces there to find Luke Skywalker all along, haven't they? <laughs> but yeah, they, they're wasted here. I, I want to see more R2-D2. And the little bit that they showed us... R2-D2 says something to C-3PO and he, and he smacks him, you know, it was like classic Star Wars there. And they don't have a lot to do here. Did anybody think that 3PO looked different? Yeah, he had they, like these little, I, I don't know if he's had them before, but the little prong things like down near his, like what would be like the breastbone or whatever looked really weird. Like it was pointing no, he's way always, far out. He's always had them, but it did look distinctly yeah. different than the They're costume. They're far more gun. pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And it did seem as though I mean, the red arm thing, oh, there was a lot of speculation what's to do with the red arm. And I think Barron's right that we're eventually going to get an answer about the red arm. I think it's in the, you know, maybe it's in that C-3PO comic that's part of that Journey to the Force Awakens line that's still coming out soon. But what really kind of threw me on it with the red arm was – was the red arm there just so he could make a really stupid comment when C-3PO first enters? It's the, uh, uh, I am C-3PO, you may not recognize me with the red arm. Was that the whole point of the red arm? Was for him to make some stupid comment like that? Like he thinks Han's not going to recognize him? Because if so, wow, that was a bad choice. And I guess we kind of skipped over one major character from the original three, right? Which is Luke Skywalker, who doesn't get any lines in the film, right? He shows up at the end. He is the MacGuffin of the film. And I don't know, you know, seeing him there at the end with the long hair and the beard, I thought he looked suitable for the situation. And it'd be interesting to see him as a Jedi master with that look. But I couldn't read those facial expressions for anything whenever Ray shows up and is holding out the saber to him. It's like he goes from the hmm to the hmm to the hmm. I'm like, those are all kind of the same things, dude. What am I supposed to be reading from your face? And they spent a lot of time on those shots. It was an odd use of him. 
And I really don't know what to think of him at this point, which I, I didn't expect. I didn't expect to come out feeling conflicted and kind of confused about Luke, of all people. Well, speaking of conflicted and confused, I have an opinion about this that may not be very popular. Luke did not belong in this movie. What they should have done is this movie should have ended when Ray and Chewbacca jumped to hyperspace to go seek him out. They should have ended it there. They should not have gone forward. We should not have seen Luke in this film. That's popular with me. That's what I was banking on. Actually, me too. The longer that scene went on, I kept thinking, and, 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 and now, cut it here. Stop. <laughs> Just stop, stop. <laughs> like, and, and then they now. got to that no, now. long, now. like, no, now. aerial pan. It was like, what is this? <laughs> like, please I, cut. Oh, I've my got, goodness. I've gotten so much grief from people who are saying, how could you not have Luke Skywalker in this film? I'm like, easy. He didn't do anything. It was drawn out, and it made the ending kind of just painful. Lord of oh, the Rings-esque? I, I could have not had Luke in the film. I agree with that. He, he could have not been in the film, and then we see him in a bigger role in the next film. But I could not disagree with you guys more about the ending scene. I thought that scene was very powerful. That scene said so much about Luke Skywalker and Rey together. And, and oh, Nathan, he didn't have any dialogue because of the facial expressions that he made were so powerful when he should have been able to feel Ray, first of all. If, I, if Ray is who we think Ray is, he should have been able to feel Ray. But it all, it, when, when, Ray, when Kylo Ren is trying to get information out from Ray, he says to her, I see the ocean, I see the water, I see the island. And so Ray's been there before. And he didn't put it together that that's where Luke Skywalker was because she didn't know that that's where it was. But she's been there before, and that's what she dreams of. So they even say it when he's trying to get information out of her. We see the island. We see Luke. He pulls off his hood. He has the cool metal hand, you know, the Terminator hand. He's not trying to hide his, his gloved hand anymore. And the, the emotion on his face, he recognizes her as his daughter. I mean, that's how I took it. And she's holding out his lightsaber, like, come back. And he's making that decision right then and there. Of, I mean, it was so, it gave me chills. It's giving me chills right now. I don't see how you guys didn't see that. It is such a powerful scene. He doesn't have to say anything. If it, they could have had that scene in the next movie, but I thought it was very powerful. I think Mark Hamill did a fantastic job with acting with just his face and his eyes. I mean, that is his daughter. He recognized her. He's coming back to save the world. Thank you, Ray. Which I'm is not... all assumption. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's his daughter. I mean, we didn't talk about Ray's vision that much, but she sees a lot of things. Would he really have abandoned her on a planet in that situation? That's what Jedis do. It went, it went, it went Ray or Kylo Ren is older. He, we assume he killed all of his all of Luke's Jedi. We don't know. I think that maybe half of them are the Knights of Ren. He might have turned some of them over to the dark side to him. So we don't know where these Jedi are at. We know that he killed some of them, but maybe not all of them. And in that aftermath of the dark side rising again, that's what Jedis do. That's what happened to him. It worked for him. Send him off. Send his kid off somewhere where the kid can be safe and watched over. For all we know... Max von Sydow's character was Ray's Obi-Wan. We don't know. We may find out. 
And that's how I took it. Who knows who Ray is? Ray could be the Emperor's daughter for all we know, but that's how I took it in that scene that it was his sibling asking him to come back. Well, okay. I know you kind of referred to that, you know, that scene in the vision where you see Kylo Ren and the other knights in that dark field in the rain. And of all people, my daughter kind of brought up, we were discussing this. Is that a vision of the past or a vision of the future? Because Ray sees a lot of things, some things that happened before, some things that have been yet to come. And the line, of course, from Obi-Wan, you know, Ray, these are your first steps, right, that you and McGregor actually came back and did. I don't know, I think there's a lot to be interpreted there, although I will say, if this is, if Barrent is right, and this is Ray Skywalker, or something Skywalker, and she was left on Jakku for her own safety, at least they did it more intelligently than Obi-Wan and Yoda and them, in that Ray doesn't remember where she comes from, though neither would Luke because of his age, but... Yeah, Ray wasn't dropped off like, what's your name? Oh, I'm Ray Skywalker. Alarm bells, alarm bells, alarm bells, like Luke. But this makes Luke look like such a jerk. It makes it look like he totally dropped the ball. Like, this isn't a situation like Yoda where someone with ultimate power is is very clearly having the upper hand and you have to, like, you know, cut your losses and go and regroup. This is your student, Kylo Ren, went rogue and you just bail. <laughs> like, it makes him look like such a jerk. And if this is his daughter, to me, it makes him look like even more of a jerk because he's like, well, I messed up with a student. He's maybe, I'm not sure, corrupted some of my other students, killed a bunch of the other ones. Ah, I really made a mess of this. He might get my daughter. Better leave her on a desert planet with some guy who's going to starve her periodically for not bringing correct junk. That's a great idea. I'm going to go over here and stand on these stairs for 30 years. Like, what? Like, that bothers me. Unless, now, this just occurred to me, unless it wasn't Luke who dumped her, it was Ray's mother, and Luke doesn't necessarily know where she went. Or Unkar Plutt is the mother. <laughs> well, either way, it doesn't, I don't think it's that shocking considering all the rest of the similarities that this reboot, and let's just go ahead and say it, it's a reboot and a continuation. It's walking that fine line, but why not? I mean, it's everything else has so many similarities. So we, we will find out, but I would not be shocked to find out that Luke did not know that during all this, that it was the mother. So maybe Maz Kanata is the mother. In any case, I think we have a lot, a lot to look forward to. And thankfully, it's just 18 months until our next film and not three years like we've gotten previously. But I'm sure more information will trickle out. It'll be rife for lots of discussions with you guys. And I really, really want to thank you all for taking the time, an extended amount of time, to discuss The Force Awakens with me. Hey, thank you, Jonathan. Good to have the Old Republic Forces Radio Network crew back in the house. Mm -hmm. I know. It took a major motion picture of Star Wars to get us all together again. Amazing. But it was fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. You know that. I would do it even if we didn't have a show. In any case, for those of you who will be following us with Rebels, we'll be getting back to that in a few short weeks when the series picks back up. 
But until then, get out there and see The Force Awakens again. Let's see it blow every record out of the water. And until next time, well, this time anyway, long live the Resistance. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. You know, and it just gave me... If there was a sound for 300 geeks orgasming all at once... That was the sound. Not sure I'd want to see that, but okay. Or I'd hate that. to be the Especially usher cleaning up afterwards. <laughs> Thanks for the bloopers, guys. Uh <laughs> Especially after you said you stuck your lightsaber up. <laughs> <laughs> the people in front of me were angry as hell. I gotta agree. See, this is. Oh. Go ahead, agree, because I'm gonna break you all down. <laughs> all right. <laughs> don't 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 show us your cards there, Baron. Will you please stop talking? <laughs>